Hi, I'm Pam Todd with Chicago Living Corridors. You're listening to Q4 Radio in Chicago at Q4.org. The Mike Novak Show starts in 3, 2, 1. One of the most exciting scientific findings of the past half century has been the discovery of widespread trophic cascades. A trophic cascade is an ecological process which starts at the top of the food chain and tumbles all the way down to the bottom. And the classic example is what happened in the Yellowstone National Park in the United States when wolves were reintroduced in 1995. Now, we we all know that wolves kill various species of animals, but perhaps we're slightly less aware that they give life to many others. Before the wolves turned up, they'd been absent for 70 years, that the numbers of deer, because there was nothing to hunt them, had built up and built up in the Yellowstone Park, and despite efforts by humans to control them, they'd managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to almost nothing. They'd just grazed it away. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, they started to have the most remarkable effects. First, of course, they killed some of the deer, but that wasn't the major thing. Much more significantly, they radically changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, particularly the valleys and the gorges. And immediately, those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. Bare valley sides quickly became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, the birds started moving in. The number of songbirds and migratory birds started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase because beavers like to to eat the trees. And... Beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. They create niches for other species. And the dams they built in the rivers um, provided habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes. And as a result of that, the number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which meant more hawks, more weasels, more foxes, more badgers. Ravens and bald eagles came down to feed on the carrion that the wolves had left. Bears fed on it too, and their population began to rise as well, partly also because there were more berries growing on the regenerating shrubs. And the bears reinforced the impact of the wolves by killing some of the calves of the deer. But here's where it gets really interesting. The wolves changed the behavior of the rivers. They began to meander less. There was less erosion. The channels narrowed. More pools formed. More riffle sections, all of which were great for wildlife habitats. The rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason was that the regenerating forests stabilized the banks so that they collapsed less often, so that the rivers became more fixed in their course. Similarly, by driving the deer out of some places and the vegetation recovering on the valley sides, there was a soil erosion because the vegetation stabilized that as well. So the wolves, small in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of the Yellowstone National Park, this huge area of land, but also its physical geography. 
live from the Genesis Art Supply Building on North Elston Avenue, just this side of the concrete encrusted banks of the north branch of the Chicago River. It's the Mike Novak Show, still Chicago's only locally broadcast deep green gardening and environment program, heard every Sunday on Q4 Radio and at MikeNovak.net. Good planets are hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. True currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. It's a long way to Tipperary. That's why he's riding the Megabus. Here he is, Mike Nova. I'm not ready for this. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. No, I'm not. Stop. I'm not even here yet. <laughs> Hold on. All right, stand by. Three, two, one. One, one more, more time. time. Are, are we on? <laughs> are we live? I think we're here. Hello? All right, testing. One, two, three. Hey, isn't that uh, a really, really cool video that uh, I played at the top of the show. It is called How Wolves Change Rivers. And it is just, I put it on the Facebook page. on the 13th, but I will republish it. And in a bunch of people, there's several thousand people have looked at it, or at least it reached them. I don't know if they looked at it. I hope they looked at it. It's four minutes, and it's just unbelievable. Um, And it was on a website called We Love Animals, dot m e and um who i've got the uh yeah i'm gonna the video here i i like uh sustainable man apparently is the the people who did the video um it's just too cool and they give credit to the i don't know who the uh, uh narrated by george monbiot m-o-n-b-i-o-t so he must be <laughs> Famous or something. I'm not sure who he is, but I'm just... He's I was got just, a cool voice, though. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, and, w- and what I was wondering is whether they wrote that out and he read it, or was this taken from a speech he made or something, and then they put the video to it. I don't really know. But uh, I just... Uh, Peggy will uh, find that, and we will give credit to it, but I, I thought it was a good way to start the program. Uh, and at some point, you and I, Peggy, are going to talk about wolves. We're going to talk about coyotes. Mm-hmm. on this program because um, they're too cool. They're just amazing animals. Uh, I did a show on uh, coyotes or coyotes, if you will, a couple of years ago, and it was one of the most well-received programs I ever did. People were calling and writing and connecting uh, about it, and it was about how coyotes are all around us. Even in the middle of the city of Chicago, you just don't know it. You never see them. And, uh, and they're definitely in the suburbs. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they're definitely out in Yellowstone. And you know, as as it was pointed out by this uh, video and, and the audio you just heard from it, uh, they affect wolves affect coyotes as well. They're not they're not the same creature. They're different. And 
when you introduce wolves, it changes coyote behavior as it changes mm-hmm. deer behavior, as it changes the behavior of a lot of animals. So it's just pretty amazing. Hey, good morning. How are you? Whoop. Are you playing? Is that your audio playing? The, it was. The howling it, wolves? Yes. <laughs> oh. yes. Oh. Everybody howl. Oh. <laughs> good morning. I feel better now. I feel better. I feel like there's been a release. We have some have one some coffee. Oh, we have uh, yes. I've had, and thank you for getting my coffee. You got to understand, folks. I I was almost here. <laughs> I was almost here this morning, and then I realized I had left something at home. Uh, now, fortunately, I don't live very far away, but I just kind of immediately said to Peggy, "Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I got to go back." And what I picked up uh, were a bunch of Marshall strawberries that are still sitting. Uh, on the side of my house, uh, just waiting for the cold weather to hit. Staring was, at you. And I said, yeah, staring at me. Wait, are you, you going to leave us here? <laughs> are, you, are you just going to leave us out here? Oh. Uh, no, I'm not. So I bought a, brought a bunch of them here. Is that flat in here or is it out? They're back there. Okay. Yeah. Hey, Marshall Strawberries. Good morning, Strawberries. Good morning, Strawberries. And I'm going to give uh, a couple to each of the women in the room today. And you know the Marshall Strawberry uh, a story. Basically, uh, Leah Gautier, uh, who is a, a food artist. How many food artists are there in the world? And, and as I always say, Mom tells you not to play with your food, and then what do you do? You study it in school, and then you play with it. Uh, and Leah uh, rescued the Marshall Strawberry from extinction. James Beard himself uh, had said it was the best-tasting berry on the planet. Uh, and then I got a hold of a plant, a single plant, about three years ago. And it has turned into, well, just take a look at those. Uh, it, every, and, and it produces berries for me. You know, it's a June bearing bear, uh, berry plant, and, uh, uh, but sends out runners like crazy. And so one of the people in the room I know is going to put it in her, I'm hoping, in the pie patch, are uh, Brianne Heath who's from Peterson Garden Project. Brienne, do you think you're going to be able to grow some in the pie patch? I think I could do a row. Okay. Yeah. Well, you, the there's only like two. Feet, so. They're a hundred feet? Yeah. Oh, so you would have to... I'd have to clone it. Yeah. Um, or, you know, after a couple of years in runners and babies, you'll... You'll be giving them away. Yeah. Well, no, she'll fill the row. Yeah. So you're, you have 100-foot rows there at the pie patch. Yes. Explain, explain real uh, quickly what the pie patch is. Uh, it's a, it's a pick-your-own farm, mostly strawberries, but also other ingredients that would go into pies, like sweet potatoes or rhubarb or raspberries. And it's right in the city of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so it's really cool. So Brienne is here, and Lamanda Joy, uh, who is the uh, founder and executive director of the Peterson Garden Project, uh, always a pleasure to have you here, Lamanda. Uh, Thank you. And uh, Christina Bello, who's the program manager of the Community Cooking School uh, at the Peterson Garden Project. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Um, and as I mentioned, Brianne Heath, who not only runs the Pie Patch in Chicago, but is the program manager of gardens and education for the Peterson Garden Project. Uh, and they're all here because they're doing 
We're doing stuff. <laughs> you're doing stuff for 30 days, and then you're just going to collapse in a heap and never do anything else ever again. Exactly. That's what's exactly. going to happen. We wanted to put bookends on it. Yeah. We will explain their 30 days of doing, which started yesterday. So, folks, if you're listening and you're not doing anything, what's wrong with you? Okay? It started yesterday. All right? What are you, what are you doing or not doing? Uh, and uh, we will get to that in a second. Uh, in the second hour, Benjamin Cox, president and CEO, Friends of the Forest Preserves. I haven't had him on the program in a long time. I thought it was about time because I love talking about the forest preserves and uh, and what the good people who are friends of the forest preserves do. Because for a long time, if you live in Chicago, you know this, our forest preserves were pretty neglected. Um, and, uh, and th- you know, I, I, what I didn't realize until... Um, putting together my blog yesterday is that uh, Friends of the Forest Preserves was started in 1998, that recently. I mean, I, I was already broadcasting at that mm-hmm. point, and I've had them on from almost the very beginning of, uh, uh, of their mission. So uh, Benjamin Cox will be here in the second hour. Rick DeMaio Weather, he tells me, he sent me, <laughs> how, how does he do this? He sent us well, he sent me uh, an email, which I forwarded to, to Peggy because I wanted her to share my burden <laughs> uh, because he has 17 attachments. I'm not making this up. He had 17 attachments to this email. All graphically intricate, so you couldn't just look at it and go, oh, yeah. Yeah, they're all like weather maps and that sort of thing because uh, he's saying we, we might have record warmth tomorrow. It feels like it in the studio today. Yeah, he said 80s. We're yes. probably going to hit no. 80s. Yeah, no. yeah, 80s. So all those strawberries will be going, plant me, plant me. That's right. They, they're going to start staring at you people in the room, okay? Um, and not just me. Uh, so uh, Rick DeMaio here at 1045, as always. So with that, uh, I welcome Lamanda, Brianne, and Christina and 30 Days of Doing. Um, I guess we should start with an introduction for folks who aren't familiar with the Peterson Garden Project and then launch into that. I mean... You are basically one of the most successful community gardening operations, I would think, in the country right now. Wow, that's flattering. Thank you. Well, I, you know, name one that's that's reached more people. I'm trying to imagine. Well, I think the reason that Peterson Garden Project succeeds is because we focus on education. We don't really focus. I mean, we do focus on the community garden piece, but we're dedicated to long-term gardeners versus long-term gardens. So that's really uh, been the core of how we reach reach people. And I think that's why it's spread, you know, because we have the books and the videos and the classes and all that stuff. So it's more than just 20 people going to a plot on their corner. You know, it's a, it has a bigger footprint. Well, yeah, and, and, and that's a really good way of explaining it. Because, yeah, if you go to the website, which is wecangrowit.org. PetersonGarden.org. Our blog is wecangrowit.org. Oh, okay. I get, okay. I, you know, I, I typed in. Peterson Garden Project last, you know, and I and I and I know this, but I don't when I'm working fast, and that's what came up. Is that was the first one that popped up was so give give those again. PetersonGarden.org. Mm-hmm. That's where you can learn about our classes and events. You can learn about the organization. You can sign up to take a class. <coughs> you can sign up to volunteer. You can find out more about Thirty Days of Doing, and then we have a blog. We can grow org where. Christina and Brianne and myself and other people contribute education around gardening and cooking and also, you know, the program work that we do because, you know, we do a lot more than just the community garden. So that's a good platform for us to share what we're doing with seniors and refugees and kids and all that. Yeah. 
You do, and you do it all, and you realize now I have to go back to my blog and fix the link. So uh, <laughs> I'll do that after the show. I'm not going to do it right now. Uh, and, and it is really important to point out that, as you said, it's not going to the corner and like like my garden that was in my neighborhood and then got built the the land got built on. Uh, but you've had that happen too. Uh, a number of gardens, you, you know, if you don't own the land. So how is it, what's your model for using land in Chicago? I know NeighborSpace tries to acquire land for community gardens. What's your model? Yeah, we are not interested in acquiring land. We're interested in having places for people to learn. So we actually call our gardens pop-up victory gardens. Okay. Because uh, during World War II when people were gardening to because they needed to eat, they put their gardens wherever they could find space. So that's pretty much what we do. We work with partners like Loyola University, Swedish Government Hospital, different private developers, et cetera. And we use empty property, the city of Chicago. We use empty property short term. And then when we need to move on, we move the garden and we move to another location. We've actually had 13 gardens total. Right mm-hmm. now we have seven uh, we do have one permanent garden at the Field Museum, the Edible Treasures Garden, which right. is a workplace garden. You were there on the day that we that's, put it that's in. That's right, exactly. And that's Brianne's baby. She goes and helps them every oh, really? Wednesday. So, and, uh-huh. mm-hmm, she's been doing a great job with that. But in general, we really just want to find a place where people that otherwise would not have an opportunity to learn can learn. Aha. Uh-huh. So let's let's move to Brianne, who's uh, the manager of gardens and education. Since there's all these gardens and all these, and by the way, how many how many people are involved with Peterson Garden Project right now? Well, we have almost four thousand gardeners that work with us every wow. year. And last year we had we haven't done the count this year, but we had about fifteen hundred volunteers that put in the equivalent of three and a half full-time employees worth of work. Wow. So it's so much a community project. Yeah. I mean, it's really, our staff is, you're like you're basically seeing our staff minus one person. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's a very small but efficient team, but it's really the uh, community that makes it what it is. Uh-huh. Uh, but so you had 4,000 people who pay for a plot, basically? Well, we call it membership. Because yeah. we're providing yeah. classes, we're providing mentoring, <laughs> okay. we're providing okay. supplies. I keep focusing on the, on the ground, yeah, and you're, and you're focusing on, on the, the services. That's yeah. right. And, right, and that's what you should be doing. You should like be whacking me on the side of the head with a two-by-four until Whack I get home. it right. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's okay. You know, the, it's different than the typical community garden yeah. model. And yeah. so it requires a little bit of explanation. But mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, why we've succeeded and why we're different. Because, you know, land can go away, but education doesn't. It's the gift that keeps on giving. So. Uh-huh. By really focusing our energy on that, we can reach a lot more people. Our original garden, remember you came when we had the 4th of July thing? Yeah. That property was $900,000. So there's no way on God's green earth. Well, it it was right on Peterson. That's where Peterson Garden Project came from. And and, um, it was prime real estate. And it turned into a health center, right? Right. But all the property on the north side is like that. Like. That's probably one of the cheaper pieces. So my point is, like, as a small yeah. nonprofit, do you want to spend your time raising capital to get a piece of property that a limited amount of people can use? Or do you want to use your time trying to reach as many people as possible? I mean, we haven't even gotten to $900,000 for our budget in seven years, so we'd still be waiting <laughs> if we were trying to actually buy property. But but you do have kind of a clubhouse now. You've had various clubhouses along the way. <laughs> I always call it. This is back from my theater days, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and when when I ran a theater company, um, 
with some friends of mine, Kathleen and other people, we would always talk about how you needed a clubhouse. Mm -hmm. That there are theaters that exist uh, on paper and move from uh, nomadic. Right. It's a lot harder to do that if Mm -hmm. you don't have a clubhouse. Mm -hmm. So what's your new clubhouse? Well, we used to have the Learning Center in uh, Ravenswood Manor. Right. And then we got our community cooking school. It was uh, three years ago yesterday, I think. 2014. Right? 14, 15, 16. Oh, two years ago. Two years ago, yeah. But going on the third year. Anyway, so um, we have some of our meetings there, but we also have an office at the ICA Green Rise building that our team works out of. So Uh we don't really have the clubhouse like we used to have the clubhouse, but that kitchen serves a lot of great food. I would think so. Go ahead. I was going to say, that's a pretty large kitchen. It's pretty extensive. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. It's really amazing. We're very lucky to have it. We partnered with um, the 48th Ward Alderman, um, Harry Osterman, and he in the Park District, and we worked all together to Mm -hmm. um, get that space, and we, yeah, launched it two years ago, and it's been been pretty fantastic. Yeah, you do do a lot of stuff there, you know. Um, uh, Obviously, cooking is is Mm -hmm. a big part of that. All right, where do we go first, cooking or growing? Uh, I don't know. I'm just so confused. Well, since we're talking about the clubhouse, uh, Christina, why don't you tell me uh, about a little bit about the cooking school and and what your goals are there? Sure. So, like Amanda was saying, with the gardens, the, the goal is to get kind of everyone growing their own food. And with the cooking school, it's to teach people how to cook what they've grown um, and really to make cooking feel accessible to people. I think for a lot of people, cooking can be intimidating and, you know, they don't know where to start. Yep. It, it is. I mean, I'm it's... raising my hand here. I, I'm telling you, although I, you know, Kathleen's always trying to bust me. She says, ah, you know how to cook more than you think. And, um, you know, that might be true. But... I think it's very true. I think a lot of people know more than they realize. Um, We had a couple weeks ago a knife skills class to teach people kind of basic knife skills. And the people. Knife skills, no. See, (laughs) I keep deliberately all the knives in my kitchen dull. No. Just so I don't. No, no, don't do that. So you won't become a serial killer? Yeah, exactly. No, so I won't chop off my finger. No, you're That's how you will. Yes. Yes, you need and to come to our knife skills class. Okay. And it's like, do you like, do you like flip them in the air and stuff? And <laughs> it's behind, not, no, it's not Benihana. Oh, no, no, oh, there's no not, Ginsu knives allowed. Yes, either. basic knife skills. So you're saying you actually need to keep them sharp yes. so you don't mm-hmm. cut yourself. Absolutely. Because I and I know what you're going to say. It's like if it's dull, you're going like yep. this, and then you slip. Exactly. Yep, yeah, it'll slip off what you're see? trying to cut. You can teach the see? class. Yeah. You know well, so much more I mean, than you think. That's exactly it. People know more than they realize, and it's just getting people confident in. And the knowledge that they have to say, okay, I, I know how to do this. Because uh-huh. um, when we were teaching that class, you know, the people that were in there obviously wanted to learn, um, but it's, and they knew when we st- saw them start to chop and we were walking through kind of here's the process and, mm-hmm. you know, they, they got into te- it like that. You teach how to chop. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Everybody gets like their a- knives and... Not we we build up to that speed. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I don't do oh, that. Yeah. I'm like that's rrr, fine. Rrr, that's rrr. fine. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you don't lose a finger, that's that's what we're going. For, <laughs> I haven't. So. You, you know, actually, <laughs> yes. I'm actually more likely to lose a finger from my pruners than I am from <laughs> from a knife. Because yeah. you know, when you, when you're working fast in the garden and you're going that's just really really dangerous stuff. That's why always important to wear gloves you know better that you 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 put a little hole in the glove instead of your finger it's probably a good thing yeah Yeah, i could teach that class too yeah yeah because well pruning you know 
is 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 art, magic, and a, a little bit of science, basically. I don't know, probably in that order. So, um, w- uh, all right. So we we know about cooking. What's your background in cooking, by the way? Um, home cook. I grew up. My dad was a farmer, and when I was a kid, we had a huge. So many people of- have you know come by this honestly. I how many people in the world uh, on the show say well by. I come from a farm family. Yeah. I'm like, I don't. I came yeah. from a suburban family, okay? Well, you so, know? so here's the funny thing. I mean, my dad grew up in um, outside of Cleveland. They had a huge farm. Uh, and then when I was a kid, I grew up in upstate New York, and we just had a big backyard garden. It mm-hmm. wasn't – and to me, it wasn't anything novel, or it didn't occur to me that, you know, most kids didn't go out in the backyard and pick broccoli for dinner or, <laughs> you know, pick the corn and freeze it, you know, and put it up in the freezer for winter. I have said it on this show. I did, I. I didn't even I, – I never ate raw broccoli mm-hmm. until I was an adult. Yeah. Okay? My mom would cook this stuff to mush, and she would yeah. do the same thing with cauliflower. Mm-hmm. I didn't eat mm-hmm. raw cauliflower until yeah. I was an adult. Asparagus mm-hmm. resembled cooked spaghetti. Uh, I <laughs> oh, didn't no. even know what asparagus was until I was probably 30. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, honest to God. Uh, I had never eaten asparagus. Uh, it wasn't on my radar in any way, shape, or form. That's not, that wasn't a vegetable that my parents were ever going to serve. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And but then I, somebody introduced it to me. I went, what? I think some <laughs> of it's also, though, at the time you cooked everything. You know, mm-hmm. it was the same. We had, my mom had a garden. Both of my grandparents had gardens. You know, so I grew up gardening ever since I was a little kid, mm-hmm. but everything was cooked beyond an inch of its life. Well, my you mom had a garden, that. but she just didn't grow any vegetables in it. She grew hostas. And, and, and she did have some monarda, so I, I learned about what we called firecrackers when I was growing up. And I, that's what uh, my mom called... Uh, well, firecrackers were those red ones, though. My mom would have one marigold, one firecracker, one marigold, one firecracker, one petunia, <laughs> one marigold, one firecracker. She was orderly. Yeah. yeah. All in a row, like soldiers. Okay, well. Uh, and, and so there's probably a lot of people like me mm-hmm. in there who yeah. grew up with less than, less variety mm-hmm. than, than you experience every day. Mm-hmm. So how do you introduce these people to all the new vegetables? You start with stuff they know. To me, that's, you know, you start with the thing that you're familiar with, and then you kind of branch out. We did a class this summer for um, some kids through the park district, and at the end of the class, we did a tomato tasting. And, you know, we asked the kids at the beginning, you know, who likes tomatoes? And, like, maybe four or five of them raised their hands, and everybody else was like, I hate tomatoes. I don't like <laughs> They're just gross and ugh. Um, and we said, okay, well, we'll, you know, we show, had a plate of all kinds of different heirloom tomatoes that we had gotten from the garden, and said, you know, do you, what do you guys think of these? And they're like, well, these don't look like tomatoes. What are, you know, we had yellow ones and brown ones and green ones and all different colors. And we cut them up and had the kids taste them. We're like, you, you know, if you don't like it, you can stop eating it, but we just want you to try a piece. And by the end, there were a couple kids like, can we take some more home? Um, and that, to me, is, is where you start. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, you start with the thing you know and say, okay, just try something maybe a little bit different. Um, and I think that's that's the big thing, and we're trying to get people to kind of expand what they're familiar with. And I think same thing with gardening too. Yeah. Uh, before, and we'll get to Brianne in just a second. One of the tricks we learned at my community garden, Green on McLean, was 
if you pick broccoli in flour, you, you tell the kids, hey, you want to eat a flour? Mm-hmm. And they'll eat the broccoli, and you say, you just ate broccoli. Ah! <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but it's, it's, it tastes good, and it's sweet, and mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's just really, really cool. And that's, that's a gateway yep. there. So, uh, All right, Brianne, now, see, that's, that's the cooking part. Ed, we're doing this out of order, but you've got to have the growing part, too. So what are, what are your duties as uh, program manager of gardens and education? I mean, it sounds very fancy. Is, is She's it? the boss, actually. Is, is she? <laughs> yes. Do you, yeah, out there with I, – I, I have a photo of her. I don't know if you saw my blog. I posted a photo from uh, a plant sale a couple of years ago, and you were there, and I took some photos. And you're looking at the camera like, don't you even try it, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Are you that stern in the garden? I might be. (laughs) (laughs) It it depends. I mean, the the weeds, you know, I get pretty stern looks at the weeds. (laughs) I'll bet you do. Mm -hmm. doesn't make them go away, though. No. No, it doesn't. So, uh, you know, you have a hard job because... People come in and there's, um, they probably know, the, the range of what they know is great. Uh, no? What? Okay, Lamanda, what? Well, we really invite people that have never gardened before, so it's kind of the opposite. Like, so they don't know anything. To, we have to talk, you know, very small, you know, very simple instruction. And, and you have sort of a, a system, what, uh, four by eight mm-hmm. beds are kind of standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you have more than one if you want? Uh, it depends. If um, Most of the gardens fill up pretty soon, but a couple of them might have a few extra plots here and there, so we'll offer them to people, but the understanding is it's generally one bed per family. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and how do you get them started in the, in the spring when, when they come out and they don't know anything, Brianne? How, well, how do you guide them through it? Yeah, if we're starting with beginning gardeners, we... Um in our program, we call them groupies. Uh, groupies? And, yeah. G-R-E-W-B-I-E. Groupies. Groupies. Growing newbies. Groupies. Yes, yes. I did use that phrase on the blog, groupies. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, so groupies. Uh, and there's a hazing, of course, for the groupies, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Just look, The just hazing make... is done by uh, mostly um, what we call expert gardeners. So they could be certified master gardeners, um, horticulturalists, just experienced gardeners. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing um, is a class called Groovy 101, which uh, is everything that you need to do to get your garden started in the spring. Feeling groovy. <laughs> How come we didn't think of that? <laughs> you can play it in the show. I give it to you. I Thank give you. it to you Thank as a you. gift. Well, you're going to have to record it for us. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. With, complete with a beer ding. We'll record yeah. it. Yeah. All right. Anyway, yes. Yes. So, Gruby, uh, we cover prepping your soil, um, how to plant seeds, um, you know, how to add fertilizer to a soil, how to use compost. And and we should add that this is all organic, right? You do not. Nobody's dragging in a, a can of seven into your mm-hmm. garden, are they? Not that we know of. <laughs> just just wondering. But yeah, I mean that's that's part of the the training you you have with these people. You want to teach them how to do this organically. Right, right. We do um, when we we do um, the Groovy One Hundred and One, as Brian was saying, and orientation and everything. We tell people to look for the OMRI certification on products. So mm-hmm. we have to teach people what is actually an organic product and how it's different. 
Mm-hmm. So that's that's very important to us. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> Brienne's very patient. She just waits for her opportunity. She's going to look sternly at you. <laughs> oh, oh, she has before. I'm used to it. All right. So uh, after Groovy 101, uh, people will start gardening. And so Groovy 101 is usually around April. And our classes uh, through uh, the summer, like May, June, July, uh, and through October, um, are focused more on what's seasonal. So what's going on in the garden at that moment? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like what pests are we seeing? What diseases are we seeing? Uh, and then we also send in uh, what we call expert gardener nights once a month in each garden. So people can talk one-on-one with a person um, who's more experienced as to what's going on in their individual plot. It's like garden therapy. Yeah. It, it is It is a lot more therapy than the science because a lot of times people need reassurances that things are going okay because <laughs> <laughs> they don't know huh well that's true if you've never seen a plant grow uh you might not know when it's doing well and when it's not what what it's supposed to do uh, oh see and christine is raising her hand yeah I so mean, you're you're the cook but you're not mm-hmm. the necessarily the master gardener no i did not i was i mean despite the fact that we had a garden growing up i don't remember any of that other than you know <laughs> planting the little pink beans when my dad told us to you know stick the beans in the ground but i am not a gardener when i started gardening with peterson garden project i had no idea what i was doing so but this year i got some great tomatoes so that was exciting wonderful yeah. uh so this is this is by way of introduction to the peterson garden project um so now we've established you do everything imaginable that has to do with gardening, whether it's cooking or therapy or growing or soil work, soil prep. I mean, Brianne and I are going to talk to a group on Tuesday. We're doing a little tag team um, about what to do in the garden in the fall. Um, and I'm going to do some of that in my backyard and take some photos for you later today, Brianne, because she's wait, waiting patiently also for my photos. Uh, but, the, you know, especially when it's 70 or 80 degrees it's in October, it's, you know what's going to happen, by the way. Uh, uh, on Halloween, it will, be, it will be 35 and snowy or something, or rainy. Rainy. And a and, wind chill. And a wind chill of minus 20. Uh, that's the way these things work. Why don't, you know, I think that, why is Halloween the last day of October? That's just crazy. Maybe last day of we September. We could move it. I think we should. I don't. I think there would be a riot. There would be rioting <laughs> in the streets. But uh, okay. Well, in the studio we have Lamanda Joy, Brianne Heath, Christina Bello from the Peterson Garden Project. When we come back from the break, now we're going to talk about doing all the stuff. You, Do it. Yeah. And I want to know about <gasps> this bottle of carrots sitting on the oh, on the table. There's a a, a jar. Yes. Is it a bottle? It's, it's a jar. Well, it's a jar. Jar, when bottle, is it not tomato, a jar? Tomato. When is a door not a door? When it's a jar, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, for all you six-year-olds out there who need uh, your humor for, for the day, it's one of those you know one of those jokes that always sticks in your head. Any, anytime I hear the word a jar, I, that's that's the joke that that comes into my head. Okay, why, why did the goat fall off the mountain? I don't know. Didn't see the U-turn. Uh, oh, that ding is wow. That's, that's, no, that's about all wow. that joke needed. Yeah. Okay, wait. There we go. All right. Food Tank is excited to announce the first annual Food Tank Summit in Chicago on November 16th at the Gleacher Center. More than 30 different speakers from the food and agriculture field, including researchers, farmers, chefs, 
policymakers, government officials, and students will come together for interactive panels moderated by top food journalists. After the summit, join Food Tank for a reception and dinner at Chef Mario Batali's Italy. I think that's how you Italy. pronounce it. Italy. The Mike Novak Show is proud to be a media sponsor of this event. Learn more and buy your tickets at foodtanksummit.com. Mike Novak Show listeners, listen to this, folks, get $50 off. $50 off with the code Mike. It's not hard to remember. Go to foodtanksummit.com. Did you know that Genesis is the Midwest's largest source of airbrush supplies? Find out more at chicagoairbrushsupply.com or artsupply.com. Stop into their showroom at 2525 North Elston and say that you heard about them on Q4 Radio or the Mike Novak Show, and you'll get an extra 10% off their already discounted prices. Genesis, Chicago's only privately owned art supplier, serving all of Chicago's artistic framing and drafting needs since 1946. This is Suzanne Malik McKenna for Chicago Wilderness. When you think of our region, wilderness may not be the first thing that comes to mind. Did you know this area is home to more than half a million acres of protected nature with thousands of plants and animal species? Our local native wildlife need your help. Now is the time. 12 Animals in 12 Weeks is a campaign to get support for these critical species and their habitats. Sponsor one today. Meet the species at chicagowilderness.org species. Trying to weather the housing market? Consider replacing your windows and siding. Remodeling Magazine says they're some of the nation's most popular projects today. Trust DR Services Unlimited, 847-998-1687 for all your remodeling and energy needs. Rated A-plus by the Better Business Bureau and recommended on Angie's List. DR is a proud member of NARI. DR provides exceptional quality at a fair price. Contact DR at 847-998-1687 or at RestoreTheNorthShore.com. Hey, this is Peggy. When I speak at local events, people often ask me, aren't you the Peggy in the Natural Awakenings ads? And that makes me happy because it reminds me that Chicagoans want to live healthier lives. And Natural Awakenings magazine helps them do just that. Natural Awakenings, it's the greenest, healthiest magazine in the Chicago area. Each month, we bring you the latest information about health and wellness, complementary medicine, fitness and exercise, raising healthy kids, and even healthy pets. You'll find articles about healthy homes, too, including gardening, energy efficiency, and green living. And if you love good food, you'll always find tasty recipes and cooking hints. Check out our monthly calendar. It's full of events to help keep you connected. Natural Awakenings is available in more than 1,100 locations throughout Chicago and suburban Cook, Lake, and McHenry counties. And it's free. Or visit us online at nachicagonorth.com. Natural Awakenings. Feel good. Live simply. Laugh more. All right, everybody whistle. What is it? Uh, I noticed this a few years ago. There's a lot of whistling in songs now. I'm not. It's like a, a, a trend. It's a fad in pop music and alternative music and the other thing is this uh turn towards neo folk as i call it with the uh the uh, groups that are mm-hmm. that are always going hey hey 
in the background and you know that yeah, it's I, sort of like a, you, you expect to see them twirling lassos yeah. and things and, and I'm, I'm like, trying to remember the one group and I can't think of their name but as soon as I heard them I was like that's Fairport Convention but now you know where did that come from uh, I don't know but it because these things become popular and everybody yeah. does them so. yeah so yeah and then they all have to do it so somebody was probably listening to Bing Crosby and said we should be whistling <laughs> that guy could whistle though he was good yeah. he really could it's the Mike Novak Show on Q4 Radio, 1680 AM, Q4.org. We have the folks from the Peterson Garden Project here in the studio. Lamanda Joy, Brianne Heath, Christina Bello. Uh, and uh, now we're going to talk about the, the reason they're here, that we've been planning this for so long, because they have this big deal, which I looked at all the stuff you're doing, and I, I'm... It's a wonder you're not all dead, uh, you know, from just trying. <laughs> we just started yesterday. Just, you never know. Uh, just trying to plan all this stuff. Um, what's the 30 days of doing, Lamanda? Well, you know, the truth is it falls almost as busy as spring when it comes to the garden. So much of the stuff we do every year anyway, the, the garden classes, we're always doing the cooking classes. We thought, you know, let's package it all together so people know, know all the fun stuff that's happening and they can participate and ostensibly, you know, this is a, a, a fundraising campaign so we can expand our sponsorship or, our, excuse me, our scholarship program next year so we can have more people um, participate in the garden that may not have the income to do it otherwise. We've never turned anybody away. We're very proud of that. And we'd love to just have more people be able to participate. So w- what kind of scholarship are you trying to set up for, uh, you know, it just so they can get a plot and so they can become Seeds members and become members. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. What, um, what's the cost to become a member? It's $85. Okay. So since it's not an inordinate amount of money, you should be able to give away a lot of scholarships, I would hope. At least that would be the goal, isn't it? Well, it depends on funding. You know, yeah. Because, of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. But yeah. that's what I'm thinking that. Okay. Anyway, yeah. continue. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and then um, we also have a program we're very proud of. We've been doing it since year one called Grow to Give, and um, Brianne runs that as well. And I told you she's the boss. But um, in that program, at least 5% of each of the uh, plots are set aside for this Grow to Give program where volunteers and gardeners and whoever wants to participate grows food, and then that food is uh, – given to our food and nutrition partners. So every garden has a local food pantry, uh, food and nutrition partner that the food goes to. So one of the things we really love doing during 30 days, this is a busy time of year, is the gardens close. So we change the locks on November 6th because that's about when, you know, we might have the first frost. We have to, you know, shut the water off, that sort of stuff. So we close them around November 6th. And then the team and volunteers and gardeners, we go in and we glean all of those gardens and we donate that to our food and nutrition partners right in time for Thanksgiving. So, what do you mean by gleaning? Well, we go and we take whatever materials that are, whatever plant materials left, herbs, people might leave their kale or chard or mm-hmm. late season stuff. We just tell people to go ahead and leave it. And we pick it all cruciferous vegetables. We never know what we're going to find, actually. Sometimes there's still some tomatoes or some peppers. Mm-hmm. But we pick Sometimes all Sometimes there's a 1958 Studebaker. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you just never know. <laughs> or <Exactly>. Toyota hubcap. <laughs> well, we have found that before. We found a bumper in one of our gardens when we were cleaning it up. <laughs> so that would have been Maybe a bumper were... crop. Oh! oh! Ring that bell! Oh! <laughs> Nicely done. Wow. You're on it today. You are on it today. You know, I'm just going to sit back here. You run run the rest of the show, okay? 
So, I'll go back to tweeting now. <laughs> so we uh, go in and glean all of those uh, gardens, and we donate it to our food nutrition partners. But what what this it's really cool. There's so many great things going on during 30 Days of Doing, but we're doing a symposium, our second annual symposium. Uh, community gardens take action against hunger and so we are going to glean one of the gardens we're going to share best practices for our program and then work with our colleagues and other community garden programs so they can share best practices because it's not as easy to donate food to homegrown food to food nutrition organizations as you might think so we've sort of worked out the kinks yeah, because of health issues that that sort of thing or not administrative or bureau- bureaucratic logistics Um, Mm -hmm. the types of things that people might want to eat. So, for example, when we first started doing this program, we're like, we're going to send, we're going to grow purple ruffles kale, and we're going to grow all this fancy stuff. And then we take it, and people didn't know what it was. (laughs) So it would just sit there. So over the years, we do tomatoes and cucumbers and a lot of herbs, and it makes it easier. We also... um, well, I'm going to let you talk about it because you you talk about the Grow to Give program. Uh, and by the way, before Brianne starts here, uh, another group that does a gleaning program is a KAM Isaiah Israel. Mm-hmm. They do what they call the White Rock Gleaning Program, and basically you're supposed to put a little pile of white rocks in the corner of the garden if you uh, have okayed them coming in to harvest because you know people don't have time to do it. And, and I, I kind of love the idea that you grew all this stuff. You don't have time to deal with it or the opportunity or the whatever to deal with it. But you let somebody else harvest so they can process it and get it to people who can actually use it. Uh, so gleaning is a, is a good thing. It's a very good thing. Uh, Brianne, uh, you're, uh, talk about some of the, the, the uh, introducing groups uh, to some of the, the produce that you you harvest. You know, we were just talking about how you know the purple ruffle kale might not work, <laughs> but um, is when you're going to to uh, deliver something, do you warn people about what you have and to make sure that they know how to process it? Not really anymore. And anymore, but you used to. A little bit, um, but most of the harvesting and delivery is done by our volunteers. Mm-hmm. So at each of our gardens, ah. uh, like Lamanda said, we're growing. Um, at least 5% um, of the produce in the garden is going to a local pantry or mm-hmm. hot meal program. Um, but in some gardens, it's up to 25%. And all of that really is done by volunteers in the gardens. So, you know, I might be managing them, talking to them, you know, helping out with different things. But they're doing the majority of the work, which is what we really depend on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... You know, they're doing a lot of the planning and communication with the pantries as far as what needs to be uh, grown for the pantry. Like, what does the pantry actually need? Because some pantries have relationships where they're always getting potatoes and onions, but they're not getting any fresh herbs. Um, so we, and I bet there are some that are always getting kale and would love a tomato. Right, yes. So we individualize it for each neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's, that's cool. When does the gleaning start? Basically, I think you told me, but I... It's going to be after November 6th, so there's a number of opportunities where people can come in and do that. And, so and so do you warn, you warn the gardeners that uh, after this date... We change the locks, so the gardens are closed. Yeah. It's done. It's done. All right, so they, they, they have... So if they don't harvest, it's yours then at that point. Right, and you know, the... the uh, you know, a program like this, it evolves, right? We listen to what the gardeners say and how things work, what the volunteers have to say. We always have, like, a best practices meeting twice a year with our 
our we call them our block captains, our garden leaders. And what we used to do is we would tell people to clean their plots and we'd get super sacks and we'd take all that stuff to be composted. But there was so much food that was going to waste and it yeah. really cheesed people off. So we're like, wait a second, let's think about this differently. So we started doing the gleaning last year. We got over almost over 700 pounds of herbs, which would fill wow. this entire building because they weigh nothing. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was mostly herbs. There was a little bit of other stuff. Yeah. But, um, it, you know, that's just... That's just one of the examples of why this is a community project, because people come up with good ideas and we react to it. So that symposium is on the 12th. It's during the day. It's free. You can sign up for that on our website. November. November 12th. November 12th. And again, that is the uh, symposium, Community Gardens Take Action Against Hunger. And what kinds of actions will you be talking about at that symposium? Well, we're talking specifically about a gleaning program, oh, how okay. community gardens can implement a program like this and sort of jump jump over some of the hurdles that we've had to figure out over the years. We're just trying to share information to make it easier for them. Give, give me, I'm sorry to, to be focusing on this, but what are some of those hurdles? Well, go ahead. Um, some of the hurdles are um, just how to bring food to a pantry. So uh, learning to develop a relationship with them as far as what are good delivery days uh, what condition the produce needs to be in for a delivery. Mm-hmm. You know, should it be washed? Should it be individually packaged? Can it all be in a single box? Things like that. Do you have uh, is- issues with, uh, you know, does the health department get involved? Do they, uh, do they worry about these things or it because... Not until of- you said something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> um, well, mostly our donations are coming... Um, you know, in good faith to uh, a pantry or a hot meal program. And uh, really what we're operating under is the understanding of the Good Samaritan Act, um, which was, I think, signed into law in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what we believe is that we're donating uh, produce that is without uh, anything to worry about. So Mm -hmm. it's it's whole produce. It's not cut up at all. Um, You know, it's been washed. uh, And usually it's just been harvested. For the most part, uh, our garden volunteers harvest and then immediately deliver which makes total sense right yeah so it's, it's as fresh as possible and there's not really a, a lot of chances for it to pick up anything good um so that symposium is on the 12th you also have well That's on the 12th you, you got like 30 days of stuff so let's go through we got 30 <laughs> days of stuff well um starting this week we did our groovy 102 classes yesterday that was yesterday yeah which is sort of the the end you know the bookend to the groovy 101 and today we're starting, uh, uh, Chris, I'll let Christina talk about it, we're starting a new program. Well, I'll go ahead and talk about it. I won't say anything. Um, so today we're, it's uh, normally during the week we do a Friday class during the day for seniors, uh, senior cooking class. And today we're starting a new uh, once a month class for seniors and others. So it's kind of an intergenerational cooking class. Uh, so that's going to be this afternoon. It's our Sundays with Seniors class. So we've got one today, and then uh, November 6th is the next one. Uh, are you going to continue that after the 30 days yeah. of doing? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Cool. And, and, and from what I understand, it's intergenerational. Yes. It's not just seniors. Mm-hmm. It's the idea is like, how do we all cook together and learn from each other? Exactly. So, you know, we talked about it in the this, um, Friday class uh, last week or two weeks ago, um, and a couple of the seniors were like, oh, I, you know, I'd love to bring one of my grandkids. And, you know, it's, it's learning to cook together. And, you know, that's exactly what we're trying to get people to do. Cool. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I'm going to whip through this because I think we're running out of time, huh? Uh, yeah, we are. Okay. <laughs> so we're, we're doing a bunch of cooking demos at uh, the Whole Foods Market near us, which is in Edgewater. This is all on petersongarden.org, so nobody worry that you're missing anything. We're doing a kickoff party. Um, by the way, I'll let folks know that I, I did that calendar, the PDF you sent me. I, I have the link, and it's on MikeNovak.net. Oh, great. Fabulous. So uh, if you. you go to the blog, uh, you go to MikeNovak.net and read about this week's show, click on it. And scroll down, and it, I say it at the top of the paragraph that's right above Brianne's uh, stern picture. Uh, <laughs> here's the full calendar of events. Bam. And right. it's right there. That's great. We're doing a kickoff at Ward 8 on Wednesday. That's Tiki Night, so we're all just going to get together and celebrate. They're donating a small portion of that night's proceeds to our scholarship program. So we're going to be there having fun. And, um, you know, we're doing a number of cooking classes, a number of really interesting gardening classes about garlic and mulching and things that are very important. One thing I'd love to point out is that we're on November 10th. We're doing our first ever underground harvest supper. So we're all Mm going to be in the kitchen. And two of our favorite chefs, our resident chef, Chef Fresh, she's been with us since before day one in the kitchen. Not Chef Fresh. Chef Fresh. Chef Fresh. Or Chef Fresh. Okay. However you'd like the to fresh say it. Chef. Okay. No, it, no, it's Chef Fresh. So she and Alvin Yu from Fusion Dining are going to be uh, creating a meal around their their culture's concept of harvest. So uh, that's going to be great. We're going to use some mm-hmm. of the materials from the gleaning, and there's going to be a signature cocktail, and Few Spirits is helping us with that. And it's a four-course meal, and it's going to be a fabulous night. There's also going to be... Um, chocolate with raspberry filling cake because it's close to my birthday so i insisted on chocolate and raspberry cake so we would love it so if it's all about you Mo- it is as- actually all about me okay just thought we'd make that clear well <laughs> i'm out of town on my birthday so this is the only night that i can really ah, do anything okay. so whatever but it's not about me it's 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 about us so that's going to be a great event. And then, you know, I just really could, if I can underscore, if people can get in the kitchen or in the gardens for any of these classes, are really we're really proud of them. We've worked really hard to make it accessible to everybody so people feel welcome and, you know, they can take these skills and, you know, move forward with them. And this 30 days of doing, there's a lot of opportunities. You know, it's probably going to be the last month where we're going to be able to be outside for a while. So it's a great chance to be with people and know that you're, time that you spent is really going to you know great organizations our food nutrition partners and other stuff and as i said it is a um, campaign to raise funds so you can find out how to donate on petersongarden.org we'd appreciate that and our goal is to raise thirty thousand dollars with this campaign and all that's going directly to more scholarships and expanding our grow to give program next year and are you also looking for year-round sponsors? Oh, thank you. Ring the bell. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you know, we're a nonprofit, so we are supported by our membership, by grants, foundations, et cetera. But we have a really committed group of participants and followers and friends, and we're a great opportunity for sponsors to participate and really do good work and get the word out about what they're trying to do, too. Um, by the way, you... That information, as Lamanda said, is is on their website, which is petersongarden.org, but uh, also the you can contribute uh, or find that link on my website, on my blog for today. I, I've added it there as well. So, oh, that's right. Now, uh, 
Peggy's taking a photo of this jar of, of carrots. carrots. So do, would you like to explain what that is, Christina? Yes. So one of the, cl- the cooking classes that we're doing um, this Thursday, we have a Canning 101 We Can Pickle That class with a nod to Portlandia. Um, so I you're not talking about people, of course. <laughs> no, no, no. You're talking about the, vegetables, we can, right? There are limited things you can pickle. Um, but what we're going to talk about is you can pickle more than cucumbers, which is what a lot of people just assume pickles are. So I brought a jar of pickled carrots, if anybody wants to I try actually one. want, you know, I'm, I, I'm one of these guys that I love pickles, mm-hmm. okay? I love pickles. Yeah. Uh, I don't often try other pickled stuff because I think, Ooh, well, for one good. thing, yeah. for one thing, uh, and part of what's put me off on that is that I don't think pickled beets are nearly as good as cooked <laughs> beets, okay? But that's, that's just yeah. my take. All right, I'm going to try this one. Yes, please. Get one of and these. it smells great. Good. So, related to that, I grew up and I hated pickles because the those old, are good. Good, I'm glad you like them. Good. Okay. We're so as Lamanda said, <clears throat> um, coriander. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Coriander. Um, curry. So yeah, you said. Yeah. And yep. coriander. And what a, else? A curry pickle. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember what else I had in there. Peppercorns, coriander, garlic, some ginger, I think. Um, but like you're saying, when I Growing up, I didn't like pickles because all I had 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 were the cucumber pickles, and they're always squishy. And I also don't like dill. Oh, I see what so you. Oh. What see, I, I'm not a fan of dill, but I love dill, dill pickles. pickles. And I and we started pickling our own this year. We mm-hmm. went. <laughs> here's how that happened. We had a lot of cucumbers this year, yep. and finished a jar of Clawson pickles mm-hmm. and it had half the jar the the brine was still in there yep. so we just shoved in our own pickles and mm-hmm. it worked it i went does. oh my god it worked <laughs> you cooked there it's you so go. easy yep well then kathleen went online and said uh, i'm gonna find um a clausen substitute recipe mm-hmm. here and she did and she tried it and it's good it's really good i'm i'm so that's Perfect. sort of our introduction to pickling yeah and that's and that's again we want to make this approachable <laughs> yeah. to people you know it's you don't have to water bath can this pickles if you don't want mm-hmm. to. You can do them in the fridge. The The brine is so simple. Um, it's vinegar and water, a little bit of salt, and you can change up the spices and the herbs and the flavor if you want. Like like you were saying, this is a, a curry pickle that we did, mm-hmm. but we also have, you know, we're going to be sampling some of the stuff at the Whole Foods on Tuesday evening. Um, so we've got a curry pickle that we're going to do and then just a regular kind of traditional brine pickle. Um, but we've got pickled carrots, pickled beets, pickled zucchini, um, pickled cauliflower. So all kinds of different stuff you can pick. Yeah, and that would make sense because, you know, otherwise, what do you do with cauliflower? Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Roast it. Roast it so good. <laughs> Cheese sauce. Yeah. Yes. Uh, what's that? Oh, in the, November no, issue. November issue. No. We'll have cauliflower recipes. You got cauliflower re- recipes in the November issue of Natural Awakening Chicago. Put a cauliflower pickle I in there. should have known. Okay. Brienne looked at me like I had just committed heresy here okay <laughs> what uh, cauliflower everybody loves cauliflower well you got the eye yeah i, I did i got the evil eye i'm sorry i'm a little bit expressive in my face you're very expressive because you're 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 still waters run deep kind of thing going on here all right brianne pull that microphone over so now that we've had some pickling uh advice before we go uh some gardening advice for the season you told me something the other day that I was interested in because this is garlic time, time to plant your garlic. But you you have a, a particular time that you like to do, which is because you know, if you look at the advice, they're saying plant it right now, go, uh, because it's middle of October. 
What's your advice? My advice is to wait a little bit um, because, you know, we're looking at a high for Monday in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to plant your garlic so early that it starts to sprout. You really want it to put down roots and then prepare for dormancy and not sprout until next spring. Yeah, because you plant it here, it, it overwinters, and then you harvest it in the next year. Right. And so what I see a lot of people do is, you know, the first of October hits, they like to plant their garlic. And if it's a warm fall, you know, if we don't have our first frost, sometimes until uh, the first or second week of November, that garlic can actually sprout. And then now your garlic clove has to deal with um, frost damage rather than preparing for dormancy. So it's not going to kill the garlic. It just sets it back because the the green leaf has to deal with (laughs) uh, dying. Right. Dying back uh, instead of all the energy going to the roots. Right. Wow, that's great advice. You heard it here. Don't plant your garlic till the end of October, okay? I haven't when, even when gotten it's, my garlic yet when to it's, plant. When it's 35 degrees on Halloween yes. and the kids are all shivering, yeah, because they don't have, they can't put a jacket on over their costume. Right, and you can even do it into November as long as the ground hasn't frozen yet. I hope so because I've got a bunch of plants that are staring at me in my backyard, natives that I got from uh, natural me, communities. Me too. I've got this nice array of ferns just looking at I me. I know, staring at us. They're saying, are you going to plant us? It's like the, uh, the strawberries. The Marshall strawberries going, Those are there please, too. please yeah. don't let us die over the winter. Please, <laughs> please don't do that. Um, what other advice would you give uh, uh, for uh, folks uh, putting their gardens to bed right now, Brianne? Well, one of our other classes coming up is called Mulch Magic. And I think another really important October thing... October 29th. Yes. Another really important thing is to keep the soil covered throughout the winter. And so covered with things that, uh, you know, will slightly decompose or carbon-based, basically to protect the soil um, throughout the winter. Uh, so no plastic tarps or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've known people, and I'm sure you have too, who think that the best practice is to clean everything off the garden bed so it looks neat right? That's not the way Mother Nature works at all. Mother Nature doesn't really like neat. Right, and what you'll see, if, if you do totally clean out your garden bed the following spring, the soil will be um, kind of thin and gray-looking, maybe a little bit rocky, and it'll be missing that top layer of that nice organic matter. Um, whereas if you cover it with, say, straw or leaves um, or even, you know, like burlap sacks, when you uncover that in the spring, you're going to see a really nice crumbly layer of dark, um, rich soil. Mm-hmm. And uh, if your leaf, you're worried about your leaves matting down, well, chop them up before you throw them on your garden bed. Mow them. And then, uh, you know, uh, when they fall off my tree in my yard, I rake them off the lawn and into the garden bed, and I just leave them. I just, that's it. End of story. It's really simple. Uh, Lamanda Joy and Brianne Heath and Christina Bello from Peterson Garden Project, thank you so much. I hope folks get involved with 30 Days of Doing. I hope they contribute. I hope they help you with your scholarships. I hope they attend the classes. You're going to learn a lot, really. If What's amazing is that th- at this time of year, you can learn so much about gardening and about cooking and about helping other people. Usually that's the spring activity or over the winter. But here we are at the end of the season, and you guys have set it up so that you can feel valuable uh, and that your services are important, and I think that's a good thing, even for yourself, learning about what to do to prepare your garden for next spring. I think this is great stuff. You can go to petersongarden.org or uh, wecangrowit.org, which is the blog. Now, see, I got it all right. By the end of the show, I'm just, I'm like totally on the, with your marketing here. Okay. What What have I missed, Peggy? 
I think we're good. Okay. Yeah, uh, I just want to say a quick thank you to both of you, too, for your support. It's really meaningful to us. So thanks for letting us be on the show. Thanks for putting us on page 19 in the in the magazine, Natural Awakenings. And we really, you know, it's a community effort, and you're partners, and we really appreciate that. Okay, and as be careful as you're divvying up the strawberries. When, because we won't I, fight over them. Because I was running late <laughs> and grabbing at them. Some of them were still attached, and I yanked some of them out of their pots. I mean, oh they're, they're really not happy with me at the moment. So make sure that when you're pulling them out, they're not still attached to each other. Oh, it's just sad. But they all, they all have good root systems, and I think you can get them in the ground right now. Second hour of the Mike Novak Show coming up. Stick around. Captain's Log, Stardate 42326.1. The Enterprise is under attack by an apparently hostile life form. Mr. Worf, status report. Inexplicable, Captain. They appear to be perambulating vegetables. We are being stalked by stalks of asparagus. That is incorrect, Mr. Worf. Killer asparagus was the subject of a very popular 21st century tome by the brilliant author Mike Novak. Mike Novak. I'm familiar with his work, and so am I. Mike Novak was one of the smartest, funniest people in the horticultural world of the 21st century. Tell me more, Mr. Data. He has been variously compared to Mark Twain, Dave Barry, and Edgar Allan Poe. Raven Gosplach, my favorite holiday dish. Thank you, Mr. Wolf. Mr. Data, options. It seems to be available online at AroundTheBlockPress.com. AroundTheBlockPress.com. What do they have to say? Hmm. It appears that Mike Novak is a slapstick every gardener. I prefer my asparagus with a side of patach Mr. Wolf, are you joking? Actually, Captain, I believe he is choking. Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show, still Chicago's only locally broadcast deep green gardening and environment program. Broadcasting live every Sunday from the Genesis Art Supply Building on North Elston Avenue, on Q4 Radio, and at MikeNovak.net. Here he is again, Mike Novak. It's uh, your 70s blast on the Mike Novak Show. Well, look at that. Right there. That's a good place to sit. The bad news bear himself has just walked in the studio. Uh, That is Benjamin Cox. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Great. Uh, Good to have you here. It's a fun studio. It's (laughs) funky, isn't it? Yeah. You know why? It's Pirate, Pirate Radio. Radio. <laughs> uh, you know, one of these days they're just they're just going to pull me aside and say, uh, you know, that little thing you say uh, during your show. Uh, in the studio with us right now, Benjamin Cox, who is the president and CEO, Friends of the Forest Preserves. Um, it's been a while since you've been on the show, uh, so welcome back. Good to have you here. Thank you. Um, you know what I realized, and I said this in the first hour is uh, that Friends of the Forest Preserve started in 1998. I was not aware of how recent. I had forgotten. Okay, let me put it that way. I went to your website and I was looking at stuff. Uh, So from my days back at Gargantua Radio to WCPT to now, I've been covering you guys pretty much since 
uh, for your whole existence because I, I went on the air in 97. This is my 20th anniversary starting uh, uh, as broadcasting in Chicago. Um, and what I was amazed by is it took that long for an organization like Friends of the Forest Preserves to be formed. Um, because, uh, as you know, and we've talked about it uh, in the past, there has been a lot of neglect in terms of our forest preserve, uh, the forest preserve district of Cook County. Um, but it's better now, isn't it? It's much better. When I started, it was in 2004. The organization started in 1998, and they did a, a really good job of building a good foundation for the organization. The volunteers did. But it was in response to a bunch of problems that forest preserves were um, being run really poorly by politicians and the, the guys that they had hired to run the place. There's a lot of patronage. Um, you know, grass wasn't being mowed. The, they have 10 golf courses. There wasn't sand in the sand traps. The garbage wasn't being picked up. You know, it was just a mess out there. And on top of that, there were some folks who decided that they didn't want ecological restoration going on in their backyard and they were politically connected and they got that stopped and the forest preserve sold land for the first time and isn't it so, amazing uh, that you can and i remember those days and they actually had support uh from some of the newspapers and some of the columnists in the newspapers unfortunately uh who w- the people would say they're cutting down our trees. Well, what they didn't mention is that they were cutting down buckthorn uh, and uh, other invasive species. Uh, but for some folks, a tree is a tree. And don't disturb our view of green with nothing growing under it. You nothing know? growing under it, right. Right, and that, that was part of the problem. So even that has – the political uh, milieu has changed in those years. Yeah, under the current leadership with Tony Preckwinkle and – the staff that she's hired, led by Arnold Randall, that they're doing a much, much better job. And we've had a lot to do with that. We stepped in right as she was running and the other candidates were running for president and said, you know, got together with five other organizations and said, here are the six things that you need to pay attention to and, and be aware of. And the first one, actually, this wasn't one of the six, this was just kind of setting the frame, was this is a forest preserve, not a park district, because she was coming from the city and and some of the other folks that it looked like she was going to have working with her were coming from the city, so we're worried about this shift towards recreation. And they've learned a lot. She'll say that if, if you hear her uh, give a talk on the forest preserve. She'll say, you know, the only thing I knew about forest preserves was a picnic I went to once a year. Um, and now she knows so much more, and she's one of the best advocates for the forest preserves, and so are her staff. I think that's a great place to start, the idea that there is really a difference between the preserves and uh, the park district. Whereas the the park, the idea is, yeah, let's let's mow everything and keep everything neat and put in, make sure that it's got facilities and benches and swing sets and baseball diamonds and that sort of thing. That's very different from the forest preserves, which the word preserve is in there. Right. <laughs> which yeah, should parks, be kind of a clue, right? Right. Parks are generally... 100% programmed, they're for something, you know, even if it's designed for being open space to enjoy, but they're always designed and set that mm-hmm. way. Forest preserves are 80, 85% natural, and it's nature for people. And then we hope that we get people for nature to come out and help it. But that nature for people concept is that, you know, we were lucky that 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago, um, these people got together and said, let's have a free and clear lakefront in the city, parks and boulevards. Free and clear lakefront, parks and boulevards, and then forest preserves outside of the city. And so it's about 11% of the county. It makes up about half the city of Chicago if you made it all one 
chunk of land is 69,000 acres, and we're really fortunate to have it. And because they started buying land so long ago, they have some of the best examples of natural areas in the state of Illinois. Now, a lot of them are in really bad shape and need a lot of help with invasive species, but people are working on that. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we're always welcoming more people to come and join the effort. You talk about the, the wisdom of people 100 years ago, and, and, and pretty remarkable. And, and I was on Friends of the Forest Preserve site uh, yesterday looking at, and, and also the uh, Forest Preserve District of Cook County, both of the sites looking at the history of it. What was amazing in 1911, 1912, 1913, as, as folks were figuring out that this really needed to be done, the reason they, were, they, they figured that out is that apparently no land had been purchased and set aside since 1869 or something oh, wow. like that. Yeah. Uh, so even then, those people said, hey, we're on a path to, to destruction here. This is, we're not going to be able to sustain any of our natural areas because we're not, we're not setting aside anything. So we look at them 100 years down the road and say, wow, they were prescient. They were, but they were already reacting to neglect yep. of 50 years in the city of Chicago. So every generation or every other generation looks at it and has renewed vigor for, for doing this. And I guess now the renewed vigor comes from Friends of the Forest Preserves. Well, and and, 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 and the Forest District itself, as you said, under uh, right. new administration. And a lot of the, there's a lot of other partner organizations working on it too. Yeah, the Friends of the Forest Preserves have really come become sort of the center of you know pulling together other groups and and working with others. But our success has 100 percent been based in in partnering with other organizations and the Forest Preserve. What are, what are some of those organizations? Well, Friends of the Parks, um, Sierra Club, the Nature Conservancy. Um, right now, we have really great par- partnerships with Friends of the Chicago River, Audubon, Chicago Ornithological Society. Um, the Field Museum, it just kind of goes on and on. We all, it's interesting because when I first started, I thought, oh, we have all this competition. And uh, <laughs> the folks were like, it's not competition. There's plenty of work to do. We're all going to work together and move yeah. forward. And it's been, it's been really excellent. Uh, that's Benjamin Cox, who's president and CEO, Friends of the Forest Preserves. Before I, again, before I was writing my blog yesterday, I, I figured you were executive director. But Well, you know, there's been this shift. There's like a, the one means one thing, the one means the other, and they're the same thing, basically. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. When you've been on the show in the past, um, we've talked about the peculiar uh, situation where, and, and, and you correct me where, where I get this wrong, the uh, Forest Preserve District uh, is a separate financial body but is, act- but is run by the Cook County Board of Commissioners. There's no separate board for it. Is that basically that's, it? That's right. So when they formed this separate government, so you go downstate and you say, here's this law we'd like to pass that enables us to start a new government. So the state government then approves this local body of this local government. And so in Cook County we have the Forest Preserve Act. And in, part of, in that act it says that the commissioners of the county will serve on the Forest Preserve Board at no additional compensation but yet it's still a separate government so you have people who are running these two governments the one you know three billion dollars the other one 60 70 now i'm getting it wrong 60 70 million dollars yeah it's just that much smaller yeah. it sounded wrong to me all of a sudden this morning <laughs> on sunday but it's they're just they're completely different things the one's all about the hospital and health and the jails and the court system and roads and sheriffs and all that and then you have over here 
where you're supposed to do conservation. And these, these commissioners right now um, are doing a much better job of, of paying attention to the forest preserve and caring about the forest preserve, and some of them always have. Uh, but at, at times it's been an afterthought, and for some of them it's, hey, you know, and this is happening right now uh, with one commissioner, but it's, hey, we'd like to, you know, use that land for something else. I need to do somebody a favor. The steel mill wants some land, or Hinsdale wants some soccer fields, or somebody else wants whatever it is. And that's been going on for the 100 years of the Forest Preserve, by the way. There's too. always pressure for somebody to, to grab some land and take and the, a chunk off of it. And Then the state law says once the taxpayers buy it and set it aside, it stays as Forest Preserve in perpetuity. But that's not the case. It ha- you have actually lost land. One time, and that was the two reasons Friends was formed. One uh, had to do with the moratorium on volunteering, based in we don't want you in our backyard cutting this stuff down. We know somebody, they'll make you stop. And then the other one is uh, under the Rosemont Convention Center, the Donald R. Stevens uh, Mm -hmm. Convention Center. There's 2.3, 2.5 acres of forest preserve, which doesn't sound like much, but as soon as you give it to Rosemont, you have to start giving it to Orland and Bartlett and Elgin and Barrington and, uh, you know, everywhere is going to want it. And before you know it, you're out of, you don't have any land anymore. When you were on the show before, a number of years ago, you, because you were unhappy with the way that the Cook County Board was managing the lands, you had suggested that there needs to be a separate board, and you were agitating for that. Is that no longer uh, a, a key priority? At that time, when we were really pushing for it with the Civic Federation, another good partner, uh, and they're, they're older than the Forest Preserve. They've been around a long time. And they're generally less government, not more. But we're both pushing for this separation um, again, we're not talking about set, setting up a new government. We're just saying a new set of leadership so they're not conflicted. Um, it, we were close to getting it done. That was under uh, Todd Stroger when he was doing not a great job of running the forest preserves. And then Tony Preckwinkle was the heir apparent, and people said, we like her. She says she wants a chance to run it. And so it's, it's not up to friends or the Civic Federation to pass this law. It's up to the politicians. Mm-hmm. And when the politicians call and say, hey, we're not going to keep pushing this because you know, we want to give her a chance, that's all you can do is just kind of wait. And she's been doing a great job. At some point, it should still be separated to reduce the conflict. That's, uh, that's what it occurs to me is that uh, there is, you know, I look at different uh, entities. For instance, okay, IDNR, the Illinois Department of Natural Resources, which has two conflicting missions. One is to protect the land, preserve the land in Illinois, and the other is to uh, manage the natural resources. And I think that has led to horrible problems like uh, the frack sand mine that's going to be built outside of Starved Rock State Park because the, you can't resolve that internal conflict. And I'm wondering if that's the same case. with It's not exactly the same thing with the board, but the Forest Preserve District is large. It's 69,000 acres, uh, which is what, 11% of Cook County or it something? Is. Yeah, one out of every 11 acres. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it probably would help to have a board that had just those acres in mind. Right. And, and that weren't thinking about economic <laughs> development or weren't thinking about the needs of the local school district or the needs of, the, of a park district in their Yeah. And have its own district. budget. And have its... It does. It, it does, does have, have its, its own budget. budget. Yeah, but does it that does. budget get borrowed from? Well, 
Not while we've been around. Okay. <laughs> I would imagine that it had been in the past. Yeah. Um, and there were some shenanigans even with Todd Strozier where there was some sort of, um, we owe you money, but we're going to make you buy land to get it back. Or It was very strange. Or we, you know, it was this, this kind of shell game that went on. Generally it was fine, but it was kind of weird, you know. So there is this entanglement. Um, and it's hard to know exactly what happens with the finances. Mm-hmm. You only get what, you've, what you can see, you know, what you're, what's reported out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's easy to see a budget, but a budget isn't actually what they do, and that's what people don't always know. So if you don't have the the actual financial statements that go with Mm -hmm. the budget, they can say they're going to do whatever they want, and then they do the the opposite. So the Forest Preserve District has its own budget, but then you guys have a budget. I noticed you've got a fundraiser. You've got a budget. Right. Friends of the Forest Preserves is a separate nonprofit, from, right. mm-hmm. and we're an independent nonprofit. Now, we get, a bu- we get a lot of funding right now from the Forest Preserve District to run Conservation Corps programs, but we also raise a lot of our own money to do that. And part of why we do that is because they can't do it very effectively. They can't hire people that fast and have them work for a summer or even for a year and then leave. It doesn't work like that for government. Mm-hmm. And, so it's, and we're good at it, and, yeah. we, and we're good at it because we work with them, and we work with another organization called the Student Conservation Association, a big national, national organization. Then we work with a lot of other folks. Um, but, yes, right now we have um, a $10,000 um, online fundraising campaign going on, and I think we're at about 1500 already. And, or actually, and then we're going to run a match on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday of this week. So every dollar you give will be matched by another dollar for the first 1000 uh, But you can just go right to our website. There's a great video to watch about why we're trying to raise some money and and uh, and get and help us fund our conservation corps. Program. Yeah, I'm I'm there right now. You can just go to. Uh, it's on the donate tab. The donate tab. And actually, uh, if you if you go to the homepage, it should be down on the lower right also. Well, I've got the homepage. Where are we here? Here we are. A little. And that is F O T F P, as in Friends of the Forest Preserves. Dot org, and I'm not on. Is this the homepage? Yeah, I think so. A little. Yeah, there we are. And there's yeah. If you go, just scroll down a little bit, and it says, "Help us raise ten thousand dollars to support the Forest Preserve Leadership Corps." Uh, let's talk about the Conservation Corps a little bit. This is one of the things you're very excited about, uh, and uh, why? Before I even started at Friends, I'd worked as an AmeriCorps member uh, in a place where we taught kids, fourth grade students, con- conflict resolution skills. And part of what we would do is take them for a hike in a natural area. And it was really disturbing to me how many young people had never actually been in such just in, in a forest, and they just had never done it, and it was really, it, it was just dumbfounding to me. And it was, it's a big part of my childhood. It's, it's much of what has shaped who I am, and, and it's a great place to find, you know, mm-hmm. solace and respite and just to feel better. Where are you from? I'm from Bartlett, so I, in the Cook County part of Bartlett. I grew up there. I went to Elgin High School, and, and then I lived in Indianapolis for a long time, and that's where I worked this AmeriCorps program. Ah. So I came back and said, you know, I'd, I'd love to have a program where, you know, we're getting kids outside and enjoying nature, and we did that through Mighty Acorns for a while. That's for fourth, fifth, and sixth grade students. Uh, but we've also had started uh, in 2007 having folks out in the field doing ecological restoration work, meaning they're removing brush, putting out seeds, doing prescribed fire, that sort of thing. Um, and then that was an adult program that we had for a couple of years, and then we had a summer high school program uh, that started back then, too, 2009. And since then, we've had over 700 paid interns working out in the forest preserves. And I always stress the paid part because I, I think it's important. They get paid at least minimum wage, if not more. Some of them are actually in the 12 to $15 an hour range. Wow. Um, and so in the summer, we'll have for six weeks, 
Uh, we'll have 80 to 100 kids and leaders out. Um, this summer we ran yet another program with the Forest Preserve District, and that was another 110 people. Um, and then year-round we have adult programs right now for 12, and I think next year it will be more like 18 year-round people out just working. The thing about this Forest Preserve District is it's a unique government in the country. It's the oldest and the largest. Um, I, th- I think that's important to, to note to people uh, how special mm-hmm. our Forest Preserve District is. As you said, the oldest, the first one that was ever started, and now the largest, 69,000 acres. And they'd love to purchase more, I imagine, but there's probably... They are. No, they are. They're, and they're, they've actually done a good job over, of it over the past few years. Um, they, they've purchased quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And they're doing a study right now, and they're comparing themselves to other districts in the country. And there's nothing that's exactly like it, but there's some other things in Cleveland and L.A. and uh, uh, San Francisco and some of the other cities. You know, and it's they're saying, okay, how do you get your money? How you know how big are you, and and what do you look like? How many staff and that sort of thing. And they're finding out that they're pretty heavy on taxes here, but they're also you know as a percentage of their income, but they're also very underfunded compared to what other agencies spend on their, you know, per acre and how many to take care of them and how many staff they have and that sort of thing. So you have the 69,000 acres. You can be in Barrington and go down to Plum Creek, and it's a two-hour drive. You know, you're all the way down by Indiana, south of I-80 by about 20 minutes. And, and you know, and you've got 500 people taking care of the place. It's just not enough people, 550, something mm-hmm. like that. And yeah. you peel off 100 for police officers and and 200 for just grounds maintenance of mowing the grass and emptying the garbage and plowing the parking lots and cleaning bathrooms and things. And you're, you're, you're saying that that's Forest Preserve District staff. The staff. So yeah. you take these, you know, you take these hundreds of people out to do these other things that, that, that need to be done, and you've just got a handful that are actually out there caring for the for the nature. Uh, and you know, I don't think any of us want that government to be dramatically larger. It could be larger, and it used to be, um, but. That's why we're what, what folks worry about that is the, the, the guys sitting in the truck uh, smoking a cigarette mm-hmm. and having a cup of coffee and kind of looking out the window and with the engine running with the engine running and uh, counting uh, a few minutes until they can get off and right. or get OT or right. whatever yeah. you know and that's that's a stereotype I I, I realize that but under Preckwinkle that's changed mm-hmm. somewhat hasn't it yeah it's amazing you know everybody um, has knows who their supervisor is now they have a job <laughs> They have their job description. They, uh, they, they have annual reviews. I mean, she came in and did a desk audit, and it literally said that most people did not know who their direct supervisor was, wow. 70% of the workers. They knew who several of their supervisors might be, but they didn't know who the exact direct supervisor was. Yikes. Well, but then a lot of us don't know who our representatives are in, in, in uh, not, not just state government but Congress. Right. So that's, that's scary. Uh, so tell me about what, so you've got the conservation corps. So you've managed to bring people in there. What are they doing? So they, there's kind of a, we, we talk about it in two ways. One, they learn the skills to do the job. So they're out learning how to run a chainsaw and how to apply herbicide. And all these things sound crazy when you're talking about preservation, but they're part of what we have to do to take out invasive species. Yep. Um, they learn prescribed fire. And then they also are kind of certified as they move along. So this many hours on this tool, this many hours on that one, this kind of certification, that kind of certification. The other thing that we do in all our programs, whether it's the summer high school programs or the adult programs, is we teach people about going to work and how to show up and show up on time. And Good point. Bring food and bring water and, and just how to act and all that kind of thing. And so those are skills, those are job skills that you can take to any job. It doesn't matter if you stay in our field or not. But part of the reason, the other reason, not to just get these young people out enjoying nature, but 
you know, when, when I'm at a conservation meeting and we were to launch in the other day, you know, it's, it's mostly white. Uh, it, it, and Tell so, me about we're gonna we're, we're going to talk about it on the show. In fact, the keynote, Audrey uh, Peterman, right. yeah. uh, I've already been in contact. She, she was the keynote speaker at the Open Lands Annual Luncheon. I've already been in contact with her, and she's going to be on the show. We're going to talk about that very issue because you and I have both done this. We're both white. We walk into these conservation meetings, environmental meetings, and it's a sea of white faces, and that's got to change. But it's different with your organization. So we, you know, we've been v- very deliberate about diverse, diversity and inclusion, and we've worked very hard at it. And we talk about it openly, and we think about it, and we're intentional about it. And I think that's what you have to do to make a difference. And so, you know, this, there's the, as Audrey said the other day during the luncheon, you know, there's this whole concept of black people don't do that or brown people don't do that. And it's just it's bogus. It's just all amount of, a matter of exposure, just like for anyone. And... So we get people out, and we, we get them engaged, and hopefully we're catching kids in high school of any color and helping them make a decision to shift their career towards conservation. At a minimum, if they don't do that, they're going to be good advocates for nature forever uh, because they get out, and they understand it, and they, they love it, and they learn from it, and they reap the rewards of it, and they take those messages back to their communities. A lot of people know a forest preserve, but they don't know the forest preserves. They know the yeah. one that they mm-hmm. go to every year for an annual picnic, yeah. but they would never go in the woods. And might not even realize they're all related. Not realize that. You know, I yeah. mean, who, who thinks about the shape and size of Cook County? I do because it's part of my job, but I never <laughs> had before, right? You know, Anybody who likes maps. Right. Yeah. If you like a map, you look yeah. at it. It's huge. You know, it's a really it big county. And it's, uh, it's, and it's not, not just in terms of population, but in, 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 in geographic geographical area, area yes. yeah. So it's so counterintuitive to think of this this city, I mean, this, this county with the city of Chicago in it with 5 million people has the most forest preserve of any county in the state of Illinois. And not every county has forest preserves. Well, in, in, in the whole country and possibly the world, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and you're cheating a little because forest preserve is a unique government to Illinois. So you've got to think about oh, I, comparing I, I, out to park uh, districts right. and what, things in other well, places. Well, what do they call a forest preserve in other areas of the country? There are some places that would call it I've seen the term in upstate New York, forest preserve, but it's a different thing. It's like a subset of a, of a park or a mm-hmm. state park. They would say this part is a forest preserve. It's more of a reference. But that type of government generally in other places is, is, is just called yeah. park district. And it's just a, a park district with kind of a different uh, yeah. lens on it. Was this originally based on like a British land trust where they would hold a portion of the forest? or That how? is exactly what the name forest comes from. And I'm glad you, you're the first person who's ever suggested that to me. I've always explained it to folks. Wow. She gets a beer ding. <laughs> so what, I need more coffee. So this term, it's this ironic. I have her on the show. That's why she's here. It's ironic because it, the name forest, you know, is in the, the name, in the mission, but there's no, there's almost no forest yeah. in the forest preserves. It's, it's uh, prairies and savannas, which is kind Rivers. of the tr- transition between prairie and woodland. There's woodlands, which are way more open with a lot less trees than a forest. Um, and there's wetlands and rivers and lakes. But there's almost no forest, and there just wasn't in this region. And part of what, you know, what was here um, as we rebuilt. But there were swamps. There were swamps. Yes. <laughs> we like to call and them onions. wetlands. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you're right, wetlands. The, the second city is a reference to the city burned down, and we built it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not just, it's not second to New York. It's the second time we had a city. And a lot of the forest that was here was used to rebuild the city. Um, and, it, and that's fine. Again, there wasn't a lot anyway. But our, our yeah, We took what was there. <laughs> right. uh, well, 
But that's the way those things work. It's the Mike Novak Show on Q4 Radio 1680 AM, Q4.org. We're talking to Benjamin Cox, president and CEO, Friends of the Forest Preserves. Uh, by the way, you can go to FOTFP, as in Friends of uh, the Forest Preserves.org. Uh, look for the link and the video to help raise $10,000 to support the Forest Preserve Leadership Corps, as, as Benjamin's telling you. Um, this, these are the people who are getting rid of the buckthorn and, and keeping the invasives out and putting in you, – you, you plant as well, I assume. We do. Oh, yeah. There's native lot, species. This time of year uh, – there's a couple times a year, but this time of year there's a lot of seed collecting that goes on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they process those seeds and they distribute them back out into the, into the areas. And are you doing prescribed burns too? That will be soon. It's still uh, pretty green and, and yeah. obviously still a little mm-hmm. wet. But, yeah, the, the fall prescribed burn season is uh, – is pretty long and it should start towards the end of the month and go into December, sometimes later if it stays dry. Well, one of the things I asked you when we were communicating about you being on the show was uh, to do a quick state of the forest preserves report. Uh, you've done some of that already today just by, by talking about it. The government's better. Um, you know, there's, there's, it, it's, it's better organized. You guys have some great programs going on. You've got great partners or science involved. Um, overall, though, what, what would be your report on the state of the Forest Preserves? So Friends of the Forest Preserves is an organization that's all about getting things done. We don't generally do plans and reports and those sorts of things. I know. This is off the cuff. I'm just it's, – it's, no, 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 it's no. a radio thing here. No, no. What I'm saying is that's not generally what we do, but yeah. – Sometimes you got to have reports and plans. And the Forest Preserve, we've been pushing the Forest Preserve to have a plan for all of the natural areas for a long time. Mm-hmm. And they finally, as part of the 100-year anniversary, they did the Next Century Conservation Plan, which is a, a, another 100-year, you know, it's a, a plan for the next 100 years. So we've completed 100, and now what are we going to do to keep the Forest Preserves around for another 100 years? And it has uh, this great, you know, four focus areas that help think about things like people and nature and leadership and economics and and then as part of that there's a subset the natural and cultural resources master plan which says here's what we're going to do to think about all of the nature that's in the forest preserves and also all the archaeological treasures too it's uh because that land is preserved these things weren't destroyed and there's actually a lot of really interesting um artifacts and and you know things like indian burial mounds and settlers cabins and just different things that are out in the forest preserves that people are studying and and so they also didn't want to just forget about those as they're thinking about how to preserve nature. But so a lot of times with government, big great plans come out. There's a you know big rollout. There's a bunch of media. Yay, we did a good job. And then they go on a <laughs> shelf and they get they get covered in dust. This one actually has a lot of working committees. It has leadership. Um, it's got it's got the staff, um, the elected officials. It's got outside partners, both nonprofits like ours, but also. Um, other folks from other, you know, for-profit companies and things like that, all thinking about this plan and trying to move it forward mm-hmm. together. And so that's really interesting, and it's been going on for a couple of years, and it's, it's been really hard. I think it's, you know, a matter of all of us, like, sitting down at the table and talking and, and just being good at that. You know, you get a lot of voices in the room, and you got to sort out different points of view and, and figure out how to proceed forward together. Um, but, you know, it's been going on for a few years now, and it's the, the current goals as part of that plan are 25 years. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a 25-year goal. Um, and so it's, it's, it's pretty aggressive, it's pretty interesting, and it's pretty engaging, and it gets us all moving forward together. It's the kind of thing that if we do it well, um, it'll start to snowball, and people really like to be part of the winning team. 
And so as you say, hey, this is really going well in Chicago, you'll start to see other investment coming, and I think that's mm-hmm. going to be really, really great. It sounds, you know, because as I said, I've been covering this, talking to you guys uh, for, well, uh, 18 years or whatever, and uh, it sounds like there has been a, a sea change in the way people think about and act upon the work of the forest preserves. Yeah, the, the next job is to then convey to the public that things are better, and that's part of what I'm doing today and what other folks are doing on a regular basis. But, you know, it takes a long time to change your reputation, and they've got a lot of work, <laughs> yeah. a lot of work to well, do Well, it's true. You know? If you grew up in Chicago, your, your idea of the forest preserves is probably not a favorable one. Right. Yeah, or it's true. where people went in high school with a lot of beer. Right, and they still do that, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, but that's the view. <laughs> that was like all there was: <laughs> beer and people in parking lots doing stuff they shouldn't be doing, and a lot of garbage and and that sort of thing. And it's just it's a, it's a new day in the forest preserve. That's that's great to hear. Now, uh, before I let you go, uh, you had mentioned something about Quentin Road. Is anything happening with that? So that here's a here's where you get the conflict. Um, you've got the the county roads folks who are also led by the same commissioner saying that road's not big enough. We need to make it bigger. Um, and we're saying you're putting this is the road that goes through Deer Grove Forest Preserve, which is the first forest preserve in the country, first 500 acres, and that's grown since then. It's much bigger. So as you widen that road, you make a bigger separation between the east and west sides. You increase traffic and noise and salt spray and salt damage from the road, and animals obviously have challenges getting across roads. Mm-hmm. And if you make it bigger, it's harder. So we've been trying to negotiate somewhere in between. Yes, the road is in bad shape. It's only a two-lane road. It's not big enough, that sort of thing. And we're saying, look, but what do you really need to do to improve this road that then also has the least impact and the most improvement for the forest preserve? And so we've been battling back Mm -hmm. and forth. Some people want to make it a a, a four- or five-lane, and other people say, no, just give us a left-turn lane, and we can minimize the damage that we cause. Right. And, And you know what? Why don't we respect nature and drive through there a little more slowly and enjoy it? And what are you crazy? A, there's a lot of other roads around. You could just go around if you really yeah. needed to. You know? Well, yeah, I think you know, and, and something that we're probably going to talk about uh, on the show also is the 53 extension. Mm-hmm. Uh, those kinds of things are very controversial, but sometimes you got to draw a line in the sand and say we're past the point where we can just ignore nature and decide that we can bulldoze everything. It's. Yeah, I mean, sooner or later, we're just not going to have any more yeah. if we're not careful. And so we yeah. have to be careful and preserve what we have. So that's, of course, one of the issues that you continue to monitor. Yeah, and so there's some improvements there for the forest preserves. There's a camp on one side and the forest preserve entrance on the other, and the entrances don't line up, and there's bad sight lines. There's no bike path. So there's a neighborhood. There's two neighborhoods just adjacent to the forest preserve. They can't get to mm-hmm. the get to it without going out onto the road and driving and coming in. So if you're a kid and want to go to the Forest Preserve, you can't, you can't take your bike it. over there. Yeah. So part of what we're, we've insisted on is that there's a, a multi-use path, a bike path, you know, mm-hmm. running and jogging that connects from the north end of the preserve to the south end, which it also then would connect up the, the, the neighborhoods. And these are the kind of details that are important, as you know, and, and like we said earlier, somebody in Palos probably doesn't know about this, what needs to be done, but the locals up there uh, know what could fix it or or could be receptive to right. these kinds yeah. of ideas. And there's a, there's a group called Build Quentin Wright, and they're made up of neighbors right out there, and we've yeah. worked very much in partnership with them on this. And, and, and we're also thinking of things like 
curbs and gutters can be really hard for turtles to get, you know, they get down in there and they can't get out, you know, so are there, should we make underpasses? And there's an endangered turtle that finds its home at Deer Grove and it needs a lot of room, so it's crossing that road on a regular basis. And Man. Those are the, you know, and then yeah. I had mentioned salt, you know, if you make a bigger road. Why don't and you, you put a turtle uh, uh, thing under underpass, the underpass? Yeah. And those exist. I mean, it's, this isn't a crazy idea. These, these are No, I, 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 I don't, it doesn't sound crazy to me. It sounds like it's something that, how much... How much extra can that be? Come on, throw a few bucks for the turtles. Come on. Little turtle toll booth. You know. I love yeah. turtles. Right. Oh, well. All right, Benjamin Cox, thank you so much, man. It's, thank it's, you. It's so good to see you, and um, um, it's so good that you're out there doing this work. This is really important stuff. Uh, and if folks w- want to get involved, they can by going to FOTFP.org. Uh, there's lots of volunteer days, aren't there? There's lots of volunteer days. Um, we're an organization of members, and, you know, really the organization is about being the voice of our members and our community. Mm-hmm. And so we have over 2,000 members, and it's a big part of what helps um, give us a, a leg to stand on. When we're talking to the commissioners, we say we have 2,000 members, and they kind of turn and watch because they know that can have an impact yeah. on elections. And, mm-hmm. and so, that, <laughs> it, you know, plus, you know, every little gift helps keep the doors open, and then we can organize more volunteer days, have more conservation corps members, do the advocacy with the commissioners. And you so. got cool stuff like the photo contest. I took mm-hmm. a, one of the photos and put it on my blog when I was writing it yesterday. Mm-hmm. There's some beautiful, beautiful photographs. Great, that are- great social media, and it's, you know, there's a. It, and also, I mean, we like to get out and enjoy the forest preserves too. We do hiking and paddling and biking and. And so we can, you know, we help. Oh, that stuff. Oh, connect yeah, people yeah. to the fun stuff. Oh, you can yeah. actually do. Everybody thinks you got to go to Wisconsin or Michigan to enjoy nature or Colorado, and you can actually do it right mm-hmm. here in Cook County. Yeah. And then you had said something about the fundraiser. There's going to be some matching gift days this week. Tuesday and Wednesday, we're going to do matching gifts. Uh, so we have a thousand dollar match. So for every dollar that's given on those two days, it'll be matched up to a thousand dollars. Fabulous. So your your dollars will be worth two on those days. So it's a great time to give. So uh, go to my website, MikeNovak.net. The links are there. Uh, or go to FOTFP.org. Remember, it stands for Friends of the Forest Preserves. Benjamin Cox, uh, we'll have to have you on soon. Keep me posted on everything. All right, great. Thank you so much. Uh, Bill Shores, by the way, is the gardener for super chef Rick Bayless, whose restaurants, Frontera Grill, Topolo Bampo, and others are destinations in Chicago. Bill Shores and I also have shared a train car to Quincy and tulip bulbs from the garden he maintains for Bayless. So when the September-October issue of Chicagoland Gardening Magazine features an article by him about how you should grow edibles in your front yard garden, my reaction is, you're going to question Rick Bayless's gardener? Get it done. End of story. However, if you question almost anything I write in my column on the inside back page of each issue, my response is, what? Chicagoland Gardening Magazine, a publication of state-by-state gardening magazines. Go to chicagolandgardening.com. But if you're in other parts of the Midwest or the South, try one of the 21 magazines in those regions by going to statebystategardening.com or call 888-265-3600, 888-265-3600. Food Tank is excited to announce the inaugural Food Tank Summit in Chicago on November 16th at the Gleacher Center. More than 30 different speakers from the food and agriculture field, including researchers, farmers, chefs, policymakers, government officials, and students, will come together for interactive panels moderated by top food journalists. Then after the summit, join Food Tank for a reception and dinner at Chef Mario Batali's Italy. 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 
And the Mike Novak Show is proud to be a media sponsor for this event. You can learn more and buy your tickets at foodtanksummit.com. That's foodtanksummit.com. And Mike Novak Show listeners get $50 off if you use what? the code MIKE. $50 off? $50, and they can see us at the event. That's, uh, that's true, because we're going to be there. Rick DeMaio Weather, coming up. Stick around. Looking for a housing investment that can pay big dividends? Remodel your kitchen or bathroom. You'll freshen up your home and add value to it, too. Trust DR Services Unlimited, 847-998-1687 for all your remodeling needs. Kitchens, bathrooms, master suites, and more. Rated A-plus by the Better Business Bureau and recommended on Angie's List. DR is a proud member of NARI. DR provides exceptional quality at a fair price. Contact DR at 847-998-1687 or at RestoreTheNorthShore.com. Did you know Chicagoans are getting healthier all the time? Hi, I'm Peggy, and I know this is true because for six years I've been publishing Natural Awakening, Chicago's greenest and healthiest magazine. And if you want your message to reach this growing market, you do need to get your business in front of our readers. Why? Because our advertisers tell us that our targeted readers are committed to improving their health and ready to take action. That's more than 80,000 people in Chicagoland who will respond to your message. They're looking for holistic wellness practitioners, integrative doctors and dentists, nutritionists, health coaches, yoga instructors, even home improvement and landscape experts. Natural Awakenings is a free monthly magazine available in more than 1,100 locations throughout Cook, Lake, and McHenry counties. Call me today to expand your market and grow your business. 847-858-3697. That's 847-858-3697. Natural Awakenings. Feel good, live simply, laugh more. This is Mike Novak for Chicago Wilderness in my own Logan Square Wilderness. You can friend a person on social media, but how do you friend a native plant or animal that is in danger of going extinct, like the monarch butterfly or Blanding's turtle or the little brown bat? 12 Animals in 12 Weeks is a campaign to support critical species and their habitats in our region. Friend an animal species today. Go to chicagowilderness.org slash species. Oh, life. Oh, life. It's bigger. It's you know... Bigger. I lose my religion every Sunday. (laughs) Right here. No, actually, the Mike Nowak Show, where you come to get religion. There you go. Get religion about the environment. Welcome back to the Mike Nowak Show on uh, Q4 Radio. I'm uh, dialing for dog nuts. Let us go to the uh, uh, phone and bring in Rick DeMaio, meteorologist. How are you, Rick? I'm here, Mike. How are you? Okay. Gray, rainy. I woke up, uh, uh, I don't know, I, I want to say like 5 a.m. to the sound of intense rains. How much did we get, do you know? Um, Boy, uh, I, I looked at some of the totals this morning, and some of them still haven't come in because they usually do a, uh, a recap of the regional uh, sites at about 10.30. But looking at the radar estimated precipitation, it was anywhere between about a half and about an inch kind of came through pretty quickly. Um, but the problem is that when you get lightning and thunder at four in the morning, it seems to last forever, doesn't it? 
Yeah, yeah, and uh, my cat was hiding under the bed. So there you go. Yeah, and my dog was hiding in the bed as well. <laughs> uh, it was we had, we had stereo pets under the beds. Uh, I think most people did. But I think what's amazing is you walk outside, which is where I am right now, and it, it doesn't feel like the, the, the 16th of October, does it, Mike? No. No. You sent a, us a, an email yesterday, and you said, look out that the Monday might be record warmth. Is that what you're saying? Well, is, is that the one that was distributed by WikiLeaks or by Rick DeMille? <laughs> uh, that was... I, 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 don't, I don't know what to trust anymore. It's amazing that I, I watched a couple of political talk shows this morning, and they're they're, they're talking about what's in emails. Can you imagine what would have happened during the, the Nixon administration? We would have had emails back then. We would have had four-hour talk shows on, on Sunday morning. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine what uh, Richard Nixon might have put. What if Richard Nixon had had a Twitter account, okay? <laughs> Actually, I, I, I watched um, uh, 10 grueling minutes with, uh, with Newt Gidrick and Newt Gingrich. And he actually came out and said that the election in Illinois and Texas in 1960 was rigged. Now, I think a lot of people could probably go back and look at Cook County, who probably tipped its way towards Kennedy due to Richard J. Daly. But um, he actually came out and said that. I'm like, well, I don't know if that – is, is there a certain statute of limitations on whether we go back and reelect the president? They're both dead at this point. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of people still like to hold on to that as you know, proof of – how corrupt yeah. Illinois politics is and how you can't trust anybody in Chicago, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm coming out and actually uh, I'm protesting the debate on Wednesday night because I don't think I'm going to learn anything from it. <laughs> um, I didn't learn anything from the last one. They still didn't mention the environment and climate change, and if they did, it was in passing. So I'm actually going to spend my Wednesday night at the Music Box Theater watching Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I think I'll be a much smarter and wiser and happier person oh, at goodness. 10 o'clock. I should come and watch it with you. That just sounds like oh, a, I haven't seen I, that I, in years. Yeah, yeah. I, I just think it's going to be the best way to spend the Wednesday night. Now, if the Cubs are playing, I may be missing out on that, but... Um, uh, I don't know. I just, I'm Mike and Peg, I just can't wait for November 9th to come around. I really oh, can't. you know what? Uh, even for people who are political junkies... This uh, election cycle has ruined it for them. It's ruined it for everybody. It's like, you know, I am so sick of this, and everybody is so sick of this. And it's because it's all gone into the gutter, and all the major networks, you know, are, are, have been, in, as I said before, Donald Trump enablers. And, and now the chickens have come home to roost, and they can't believe all this stuff is happening. And I'm thinking, well, what do you mean? You guys set it up. You, you, you want right. it, you know? So now you're surprised at this right, length, you right. know? You and should probably all- divvying it out. They, are all, they should all be ashamed of themselves, and I mean all of them, all of the networks and pretty much all of the reporters should all mm-hmm. be just ashamed of themselves. It was, it's been yeah. a terrible, terrible situation. But, but, but as someone who was in the media before, Mike, if you're asking someone on the street a really important question about the environment, and all of a sudden behind you, uh, a car drives up on the sidewalk and smashes into a garbage can, and five people <laughs> run out of the way, you're going to turn the can- camera and cover that. I hate to say it, but that's that's what human nature is when it comes to when it comes to the news media. So mm-hmm. when people say, "I can't believe what the news media is covering," 
think about that analogy. Think about that metaphor. That's pretty much what this is. But you're, what into. you're saying is that the, the, we have uh, cars crashing into garbage cans every hour of every day. Our 24-7 media cycle is covering nothing but cars crashing into garbage cans, and we have no time for anything else. Right. Right, and and that and that and that and that garbage can is is Donald Trump. I mean, he, he he every day he comes out with something different that you go, huh? Did he just say that? Let's put it on the air and analyze it and ask some ask some smart person what did he mean by this and how is this going to affect his election? It's but but that's and he and you know what, Mike? He has successfully figured that part out. He really has, mm-hmm. and that's really sad. It's it's almost like. The people who are, who are supporting him, uh, and I think I'm free to say this on your show, they might as well start doing that, that long goose dip with their, with their right arm in the air. That's literally what this is coming down to. It's really, really scary. Well, except that, and, I, and we'll, we'll get to weather in a second, folks, and climate, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, except that he, and, he's... And lack, and, Mike, and lack of discussion about issues relating to the environment. There we this go. This is where we become. Well, that's not his fault, all right? The, it's, no, not it's, at all. It's, again, you look at the moderators of the, the debates, why, are the, why is that subject not coming up? Why has it not come up at all? And as you said, it's gotten mentioned in passing, and it's usually because somebody from the audience in a town hall brings it up, not because any of the so-called right. uh, experts on stage bring it up. Right, right. And I don't, I don't think Chris Wallace is going to bring it up on Wednesday. Oh, my goodness, no. <laughs> no. That's not yeah, going to happen. I mean, think of, think of all the people who were in charge of 60 Minutes. They're probably rolling in their graves right now. I mean, it's just, it's, it's gotten to be, you know, where, where's Ted Koppel when you need him? You know, stuff like that. Or Dan Rather. I know Tom Broca is up on the, on the podium every once in a while. Or, and, you know, on the, on the analysis desk after that. But, you know, but. So, again, that's what I'm doing on Wednesday night, going to see Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's. That's, let's... That's, that's my vote. <laughs> well, let's talk about uh, yeah. the, the aftermath of uh, Matthew. You oh, said, my you... God. Matthew and Nicole. <laughs> yes. So um, wh- uh, there was a, you know, uh, what a lot of flooding, a lot, right. oh, yeah. a lot of devastation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we, yeah. Th- uh, right on my, uh, my Facebook page, there was this horrible story about how a lot of factory farms got flooded and thousands, maybe tens, millions. Mil- maybe millions of animals died because, you know, they locked the doors, walked away, and the place got flooded. And the coal ash. Yeah, and, and you know what? I'm sorry, what was that? And, and, and all the coal ash that has now gone into the rivers in North Carolina. Yeah, and, and you know, when, when you think about the, the timing couldn't have been worse because a lot of your crops are obviously uh, mm-hmm. near harvest. And now you're trying to harvest something and also save your topsoil. Um, and, and a lot of the flooding was actually due to the fact that you had two different tropical storms, both Julia and remnants of Hermine, move through those same areas um, about a month beforehand. So the ground was completely saturated with anywhere between 15 and 20 inches of rain uh, prior to that. Also, the physical geography of North Carolina and South Carolina basically has 90% of the rivers pretty much flowing from the northwest to the southeast. Uh, it's not like they can go in other places. They basically have to go in one direction. And in addition to that, the storm surge uh, that Matthew actually produced kind of kept the water from, from going back down into its normal tributaries. So it was like three different things between 
the amount of rain that you got beforehand, the 12 to 1500 inches of rain that you had during the event, and the fact that the ground couldn't basically take the rain and, and push it someplace else uh, created this massive flooding. So um, some, of the, some of the preliminary reports have shown anywhere between eight and maybe $10, billions of, $10 billion of damage uh, total from the storm. That includes the United States, uh, the Bahamas, and obviously the Caribbean, which would include Cuba and Haiti. And obviously the situation in Haiti just gets worse with every natural disaster. We, we touched on that last week. But the Bahamas, the Ministry of Tourism there, said that this was the most costly uh, hurricane and natural disaster uh, that country has ever seen, even though the infrastructure wasn't damaged. It was a slow-moving storm that had an enormous impact on the economy. And in addition to that, we had Nicole's, which actually ramped up to a Category 4 hurricane on, on Wednesday. And you're looking at this thing, and this was, you know, Matthew's little sister that was sitting out in, you know, to the east by about a 1,000 miles, just kind of looped the loop, looped the loop. And here it is on, on, the, on the, the 12th of October at 32 degrees north latitude. This thing goes from a 1 to a 4, and you're going, this is not supposed to happen. But it happened. And it devastated the eastern part of the Bahamas, I mean, uh, Bermuda. But the thing about Bermuda, and if you've ever been there or seen pictures of it, almost every single building is literally hurricane-proof. So unless they get almost a direct hit from a Category 4 or 5, a 2 or 3 type of wind is not going to have that much of an impact on them. So they lucked out with this. But again, when you look at the number of hurricanes we've had, uh, the Atlantic, or I should say the accumulated cyclone energy, that's what's called the ACE index, uh, right now is showing 117 units for the season. And you're probably saying, well, well, what does that mean? Well, the normal is typically about 85. So we're essentially about 25 to 30% above that for the year. And most of that has come pretty much after Labor Day. And that, I think, is kind of scary, Mike. It shows you how much heat is in the oceans. And the fact that this is still producing hurricanes this late in the year uh, tells you something about what type of year this has become. Yeah, and then uh, the Pacific Northwest is getting slammed oh. by the remnants of a typhoon. Yeah, two typhoons. The one that came through parts of Japan uh, a couple of days ago, and then obviously the second one that hit uh, yesterday. And again, this is what we've been talking about for a couple of weeks is how, how much of an impact um, some of these storms across the eastern United States and some of the typhoons coming out across the West Pacific will have on our weather here, and you can kind of see it. You've had two different storms produce winds of over 80 to 90 miles an hour, obviously in the peaks of the Olympic forest and in the Cascades. Down in the valleys, they'll get 40, 50-mile-per-hour winds, and they'll be okay with this. Uh, but this kind of leads to you wondering, okay, what happens then during the wintertime? You have all this rain now that has fallen almost a foot to a foot and a half with two storms, you know, does this eventually lead to, you know, mudslides and unstable riverbanks, kind of like what we had with the Oso Washington mudslide, that's OSO, by the way, uh, a few years ago. And again, look what, look what it's done to our temperatures here. You know, it's pushed us into the 70s um, yesterday, even though we had a cloudy start. But you walk outside, and this is not typical October weather. Now, it doesn't mean that we're complaining about it, <laughs> but this just goes to show you, this just goes to show you um, how a, a very active late season or late typhoon season can have on all weather here in the Midwest. 70s today and possibly low to mid-80s tomorrow. And that does that quickly go away after uh, Monday? You know what? It, it's interesting because 
I think the pattern is so unstable out across the North Pacific. Um, two weeks ago, it was showing that we were going to get into a cool pattern. I kept saying it depends on how things develop out across the tropics, or I should say the West Pacific. Uh, does it look like it's going to kind of go away after Tuesday? The answer to that is yes. It looks like it kind of goes away. But does it come back? It probably does. Uh, but as I said before, if we're getting this active uh, this late in the year, this could lead to a very, very active late October and into early November. So um, it, it's, still, it's still tough to see what it looks like beyond two weeks. Uh, but if <laughs> you like warm Octobers, um, <laughs> we're having one today, even though it's kind of cloudy and humid out. Um, this is probably going to continue at least, I would say, for the next week before things really begin to change. But um, uh, any way you slice it, I think people are really beginning to see what happens when you have warmer than normal global temperatures. It feeds into the oceans. The oceans produce this feedback into tropical cyclones and hurricanes. Not all the time, but it does happen. And then once those storms begin to kind of move northward, all you're basically doing is taking heat from one side of the frying pan and pushing it elsewhere, and that's exactly what's happening now across much of North America. We're seeing what happens when the tropics uh, become a little bit more intertwined uh, with what's going on here, generally north of 40 degrees latitude. Yeah, and as you uh, always say, that it's all connected, and anybody, oh, yeah. anybody who stu- studies weather uh, knows that there's, there's an... Uh, a reaction to something that happens on the other side of the globe. It's, it's just going to happen eventually. Well, the, the, the key is, and I'm, I'm not going to get back into a media thing, but the key is whether or not the people who are the, on the forefront of, of television weather, do they have the knowledge and the fortitude and the gumption to go up there and say, look at how warm the water's here, okay? That's eight seconds of a slide. Look at how it's feeding the tropical weather system. That's another three seconds. Notice how these storms are moving northward and bringing us very mild weather. So the question is this. Yes, we like the mild weather, but now you see how a warmer atmosphere and warmer oceans is influencing our weather here. That you can say instead of saying, here's the low, here's the high, here's our temperatures. Isn't this nice? Okay, Everybody can see that. Anybody can do that. But after a while, get into the weeds a little bit. Talk more about how this is connecting with the rest of the environment. Talk more about what happens when it becomes a little bit abnormal. And it's not good for the agricultural committee or community. And it's not good when you have all these farm fields in eastern North Carolina, you know, basically lose their shirt in a matter of two or three days because that's pretty much the ultimate disaster is when the climate becomes so unstable uh, it becomes not so much unpredictable, but you can't work with it. And right now we've learned how to work with climate. It's really tough to work with climate that's changing. Yeah, and let's not forget when you kill millions of chickens, uh, drown them because uh, you weren't pre- – well, you have them there in the first place in those confined operations, and then you, oh, yeah. you don't even have yeah. enough sense to, to, to let them out. Well, it's the but, uh, but you couldn't. I mean, yeah. I don't know how you do that. Where, yeah, where do you put the chickens? But then, what do you do with all of the waste pools that are sitting there? Exactly. And now you've and got all that contaminated <laughs> yeah. water. And yeah. now, what do you do yeah. with all the millions of dead chickens? Yeah. Yeah. It it, it becomes those all those questions become, you know, very important. Is, is how do you react to this stuff ahead of time? Because obviously, 
you know, when the water is rising, it's tough to grab the stuff that's important um, and head out the door to higher water. So, you know, these are all things that, 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 that I hope, you know, people are kind of listening to and understanding that, you know, this, this is what we're seeing now. But if it continues to happen and, and it gets worse, you know, 30, 40, 50 years down the road, we'll be talking about why didn't we do more about it, you know, when we kind of recognize the sign. Uh, yeah, so I, it, 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 I want you to teach that class on how to do weather in the 21st century <laughs> on television, okay? Yeah. You, you, got, you have to give us 30 seconds of climate. You just have to, yeah, you know? Yeah, I, and, and there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, I, I, was with, I was with Brant Miller a couple of weeks ago um, at a weather service seminar, and I was, I, was, I was surprised at how much he was talking about his concerns about the environment. And I go, I go, why don't you do more of that on TV? He goes, ah, people don't care about that. They just want to know what to wear tomorrow. I'm like, I don't, I don't think so. I, I think you do need to do more of that. And the only person that does do that is Tom Skilly, but he only really does it on, on radio when he's on the afternoon with Will Khan and then on his blog. But he doesn't do it on the air because I still think they're kind of worried that people are, are going to be kind of put off by it or surprised or they'll probably say, but that's not your place. But you know what? It is your place. You it know, really is. Here, here's what you do. You get rid of those stupid weather photos, and there's your, there's your opportunity, <laughs> your opportunity well, to do but climate. But here's the thing, Mike. Instead of having the stupid weather photos, why don't I have some compelling weather photos? Yeah, or you have like the, the yeah, chicken farms. Like, yeah. Yeah, like once or twice a week, you know, instead of having it at the top of the newscast where they're just, you know, it's just lip service, say, look, here are some photos of disasters due to weather events that have been induced by climate. And instead of laughing and going, ha, 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 that's so nice. Yeah, it's really neat to see frost on a pumpkin. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Have something where people go, wow, you know what? I didn't realize it was that bad in Haiti. What can I do to help? Exactly. You know, where do I send my check? There you go. You know, have, a little bit, you have a little bit more guts uh, to kind of put something forward that people can actually go, you know what? That's why news is important. Because it's becoming irrelevant at this point. Well... That's a that's a good way to wrap up that segment. How about a forecast for the, and uh, maybe even uh, I know you don't like to do it more than a couple of weeks in advance, but Halloween is only a couple of weeks away. You know, and and, and that's fine because you know it, it's amazing that the Cubs played in such unbelievable, mm-hmm. beautiful weather last night. Uh, you know, normal high for this time of year is now down to sixty three. Um, I think game time temperature was like seventy, and the end of the game <laughs> it seemed even warmer than that. Uh, but probably mid-70s today once we get rid of some of these clouds. I know there's a lot of cloud cover out there right now, but satellite shows some sun developing across the western part of the state. So that should be in here late. And then as the second system pushes in the Pacific Northwest and across the Rocky Mountains, that will really boost the temperature up. So tomorrow, 80 to 85 for a high. I don't think we'll break the record, which is 88, but it's going to feel that way because humidity is going to actually be quite high. Uh, so tomorrow's temperature is probably low to mid-80s. A little bit of a cool down on Tuesday as the week front begins to approach and then much cooler weather back into the um, uh, 60s on Tuesday and probably lower 60s on Wednesday. But uh, the Cubs, I think, play Mike out in California on Tuesday. This will be one of those rare events where it may actually be cooler in L.A. with the onshore flow than it is in Chicago in the middle of, uh, in the middle of October. So, so, so to go out on a limb a little bit, I still think above normal temperatures, probably for the next two weeks. We'll see how the tropics kind of get themselves kind of settled down and then probably much cooler weather in November. But still, 
so far four degrees above normal for the month, and I don't see it going anywhere else but above normal for the next two weeks. Wow. And uh, and Halloween, I, as I said earlier in the show, that it's always <laughs> Halloween is the day when the temperatures plummet to thirty five and there's a cold rain. Yeah, and then, and then as a kid, you ring the belt and they go, "What are you this year?" And you go, "I'm a winter coat." Um, but uh, uh, I, I uh, to be honest with you, I don't know. That's 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 two weeks away. Yeah. That's, that's pretty far. Uh, by the way, Casey Tomato just tweeted, and I know he's always listening, and I appreciate give give the man a, a ding. Uh, he says maybe forecasters don't mention climate change because station managers don't want to PO corporate advertisers in their interests. Well, yeah, obviously there's some of that going on. We, I, yeah, unfortunately, yeah, that, there is. They, they usually say leave that up to the news people, but the news people don't know any better. So um, <laughs> you just you just got to be able to go out there and and be the first. It's never easy to lead. It's always easy to follow. Yep. Um, so. We'll, we'll we'll put the Mike show Mike Novak show up there as the, as the leader. How about that? Uh, well, we you know we talk about just about anything in this uh, weather segment. So, uh, Rick DeMaio, meteorologist, always a pleasure. Uh, enjoy the warm weather yourself today. Go walk your dog or something, and uh, we'll talk next week. Yeah, and I'll give you a, a recap of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I've seen it before, but you always, always find something different that 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 those crazy Brits you know basically put together back in the 70s but talk to you next week mike all right take care care. bye all right there we uh have it um i think that's about it i think that just uh kind of it's just us and the two tomato plants left no no not tomato i'm uh sorry strawberries strawberry strawberries and our theme uh i want to thank everybody who was on the show today and that included uh, Lamanda Joy, Brianne Heath, Christina Bello from Peterson Garden Project. Garden Project. Oh, come on. I haven't had anything to eat today. Do you know that? All right. Uh, Benjamin Cox from Friends of the Forest Preserves. And, of course, Rick DeMaio. And, of course, Peggy Malecki. Um, anything you want to say quickly about Natural Awakenings? We're working on the November issue, which is unbelievable. Okay. Go green or? Go home. Stadler? Oh, uh, what? Is that it? Yes, it's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much.